thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Now Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Some celestial event. No words. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Bartleball. This is the place where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. And I am super excited about tonight's episode. Uh, it's probably one of the episodes I've been looking forward to the most of any podcast I've done so far. And I'm really excited to tell you what we're doing. But before we do that, I want to introduce three guests. Yeah, we have three guests tonight. And they are all from the same podcast. I pretty much uh, emptied out the entire land of the creeps, except except for Sean. And uh, I want to go ahead and introduce uh, Bill Van Vagel. Bill? Hello. H- hello. How's everybody doing? And uh, Dave Becker. Hello, everyone. Thank you for, uh, for having me on, Nathan. I appreciate it. Yeah. And the host of Land of the Creeps himself, I finally got Greg Morgan here. Greg, how are you doing? <laughs> Doing good, brother. Thank you, and hello. Yeah, thank you so much, guys, for coming on. And we are here actually to talk only about one movie, which will probably feel kind of weird, uh, considering that over on your show, you guys usually talk about 20 movies at a time, <laughs> uh, 20 horror movies. I, slow on a slow episode, yeah. Keeping horror alive one movie at a time, you need to change that slogan just a little bit. Yes, yes. <laughs> one, one, move, one movie one every One sub-genre at a time. Movie, yeah. right. right, right. One movie every every 15 minutes. And one then, country uh, at a time. Right. <laughs> Canada needed two episodes. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So tonight we're actually here to talk about a science fiction movie, probably, uh, in my opinion, one of the most influential science fiction movies ever made and that is stanley kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey and uh it's a movie that i love it's one of my all-time favorite movies probably my all-time favorite science fiction movie but it's a movie i've never actually uh, i've never really sat down and discussed in terms of a podcast and i think it would be really cool to do that and one of the things that actually initiated all of this was uh over the summer greg i noticed that you had gotten that was it the 4k uh blu-ray of um 2001 a space odyssey and you were yep. watching it for the very first time yes sir never had seen it yep so i was really excited i thought it'd be really cool to have someone who'd never seen it before and then we just learned that this was also bill's first time for seeing 2001 a space odyssey all the way through and uh dave i know you've seen it before it's yep, uh, definitely. 50 50 <laughs> right <laughs> so, right one of the things i want to do just very briefly before we start is we'll go around and we'll get everybody's impressions of it and i say first impressions uh, it might be hard for some of us who have seen it before to remember the exact first time. I have some memories of it. We I think all of us rewatched it just recently again for the show. So impressions from the latest viewing or your first viewing, whatever, that'll be fine. But this is a, it's funny to think that this was a 1968 science fiction film. And, and 
I think even for people who don't necessarily like the movie, it's hard to argue that when you watch it, that it doesn't hold up in a sense, that the special effects, the look of the film, it still has a feeling of, of not being of that time frame. When I look at it, I don't see a 1968 science fiction movie. When you consider that the same year, another very good science fiction movie, Planet of the Apes, came out, you look at Planet of the Apes and you can see in Planet of the Apes a 1960s science fiction movie. But it, it just kind of blows my mind to think that that was a 1968 film. And then particularly watching it now and watching it with like my kids who are talking about all these things and like, oh, how is just like Alexa. And, you know, everything that seems commonplace now would have been sort of mind blowing and new in 1968. So it's really interesting to see that. It's interesting to see where it fell in re regards to the two people that were most involved with it, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. And I'm sure we'll have some commentary on that as we go through. But uh, Kubrick, I believe, have just it was a several years delay in between this and his mo the movie right before it, which was Dr. Strangelove, which is also a very strange sort of idiosyncratic movie. But uh, this was something altogether different. And when it hit theaters, I don't think initially people knew exactly what to do with it. And of course, being that it was a very sensory movie, it, it got labeled as a drug film pretty quickly to the point that the studio actually just went with it. And I think what was that a few months after the movie's released, it's now marketed as 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Ultimate Trip, on, directly <laughs> right. on the marquee. David Bowie is bragging about how he's, you know, smoking up before he goes in, as I believe a lot of people were. I think it was the critic Roger Ebert who said that people would, like hippies, would just come in for the last third of the movie and lay on the ground in front of the theater seats and look up at the screen. Whether they paid or not, I have no idea. But So I'm curious to see if your experience was anything like that. <laughs> Great. So let's go ahead and get started with that. Just, the, you know, the your your basic thoughts on, on the movie, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which, again, it's based off a short story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Sentinel. And then as he was writing the script, he kind of developed a novel that ended up going along with it. And we can get into plot details a little bit later, but I just want to deal with um, – it's a movie, you know, it's easy to access and see. But So I just deal with our – our feelings up front. Greg, what do you think? Um, first viewing, man, I mean, this was that movie that was on the bucket list. and But first viewing, I mean, amazing. The first thing I thought about was just the, and it may be because of the 4K transfer looks stunning. Like, it is so gorgeous. But I honestly was blown away with the visual of it, of course. I mean, because it is so light, light years ahead of its time. I mean, it honestly was. But that was my first initial thought was like, this movie is gorgeous. Like, it is so bright, beautiful. The cinematography is amazing. And I'm sitting here, like, looking at the special effects thinking, you know, this is before Star Wars. And, like, wow. To me, I mean, other than the fact there's no action really in this movie. But, <laughs> and, like, for I, my first experience, let me say this, was the opening. I had to fast forward and rewind. I thought something was wrong with my disc because there was no nothing it was just black and i'm sitting here like god is something wrong i hear audio but i hear you know i don't see anything so i'm like something's wrong with my disc like dag on it so then i forward and i find out oh yeah like seems like 30 minutes it's only a couple minutes but you know the first little bit <laughs> there is no visual so i'm like oh okay all right so i'm not but uh first time viewing i thought it was really interesting and then second time viewing i caught a lot more that i didn't catch in the first one I, and this one i agree nathan is that one that you got to do those multiple viewings and uh blowed away man i mean freaking oh yeah that's all i gotta say is wow <laughs> the visual 
And there again, could be 4K, Dave, Nathan, Bill. It could be, I don't know, but it visually is like watching National Geographic in the beginning. Like, I think I'm watching a documentary. It's so beautifully shot, man. Amazing. Yeah, that's one of the most striking things about that movie when you watch it. Not just how beautiful the images are. And you're right, they're very clear. They are. And that's what kind of is a bummer about a lot of science fiction movies these days. They're almost so dark sometimes that you can barely see them. Yeah. Once they take place or the in space and it's like, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah, do this. This is perfect. Like Armageddon no almost gave me a seizure <laughs> watching it. It was just <laughs> as long as that movie. And then I realized that a movie in which everything happens is sometimes yeah. twice as boring as a movie in which nothing happens. Yeah, right. and that was another thing that caught me was the fact that other than, I believe, Gone with the Wind, this was the one that I seen the intermission. I'm like, oh, wow, wait, we got intermission? Whoa. Well, at you least know, there this- they had the decency to put up a title card letting you know your disc wasn't broken. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> but yeah, I, blown away, man. Great movie. Spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler. So, so let me ask, Greg, uh, I do yes. have a question. Because as you pointed out, there isn't a lot of action. How did you feel about that? And I'm sure you're watching it at this point. You're probably aware that people have said, yeah, this is a slower paced movie. Did you how did you feel story wise with the movie? Did you feel you could still get into it at all? Did that lull in the action bother you at all? It Well, I went into it knowing that I did go in and I love slow burn movies that take you somewhere. So I knew this was going to be that journey that was going to take a while. Um there are moments that I was like, you know, they could have cut this and made it a little tighter and made it a little less uh, drawn out. But overall, I mean, just watching the, you know, the progression from, you know, basically the beginning of time and then you watch it, you know, go through space time. Um, I, I was pleased with it. I mean, was there times that I felt like, you know, oh, maybe speed up a little bit? Yes. But overall, I think the payoff at the end worked really well um i'm curious to hear what you and dave have to say about 2010 because i really would like to know what happens after this one because it does leave you kind of wanting more in a sense but wow dude i mean i keep scratching my head guys thinking this was before star wars like this was before we almost a decade yes like we we hadn't even walked on the moon yet that's the mind-blowing part, the moon oh landing. And it's hard to remember that. <laughs> yes, like he did it before, like legit. And and I don't know how much you want to talk about that right now, but I mean, I was just like amazed. Yeah, we, can, we could talk about it now. I mean, after all, he did film the moon landing. So, I mean, of course, yeah, that's of course right. he got it right. I was going to say, that, that, was, that was the <laughs> route that... That because of this movie, they they let uh, Stanley Kubrick film the uh, the uh, fabricated moon landing is what a lot of the uh, a lot of theories are out there. That and the conspiracy the theories, these hidden clues in The Shining that let you know. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, well I, I heard a I heard a quote like a a humorous quote that said, "Yes, Stanley Kubrick filmed the moon landing, but he was such." a stickler for detail that he had to do on location shooting. So it doesn't really matter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing that got me was I was watching one of the bonus features on the Blu-ray. And, um, what threw me was the fact that I did have to go and search it out. Cause I'm not a big history buff. So I'm like, okay, when did we land on the moon? Okay, boom, there we go. And one of the gentlemen on the documentary was talking about the fact that, when Stanley Kubrick films the the scene and you kind of see Earth below, and he says, yes, it's not 
accurate as far as what it would look like. But he said we had never seen what Earth looked like from space. So he actually thought, okay, this is what Earth would look like, and he put it out. So, I mean, to me— And you watch it now, it doesn't doesn't feel weird or odd. It doesn't look off. It don't. Like, it looks like legit we had space stations and we had, you know— micro men out there in astronaut suits running around but no we didn't but he made it and i'm like holy cow dude and pearl had said it was so magic and creatively done and it's just it's i mean was he from another world i don't know i mean i where was stanley kubrick from because what he put out was i don't know man it was just eerie to think that the predictions and the things that has happened you know with video calling and different things that's in this movie like he did it before it ever happened, and now I'm like, is this Nostradamus? You know, I mean, not Nostradamus, but um, Nostradamus. 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 I'm like, what? Nostradamus. I'm not trying to be too thick here, but I'm just like, dude, this this movie is out there, man. Wow. If Kubrick was a time traveler from the future, that would explain why he was so grumpy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Lack of sleep. Suddenly, the I feel a movie coming on. Yeah, Stanley Kubrick is an alien. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, if exactly. you look at all of his And actually, and, and I'm I'm hearing a movie Nosferatu meets Nostradamus. How cool of a movie <laughs> yeah. is that? Thing? Right. That's a full moon movie. You know that's what that is. <laughs> cool. And we'll come back to some of that, Greg. One thing I do want to mention, you were talking about like the moon landing and the kind of history thing. And I'll throw this out there now that what I was reading that uh, because Arthur C. Clarke said that while this was being made, he and Kubrick were working together. Of course, Arthur C. Clarke at that time was a well-established science fiction author, and he had he'd also played around with a lot of this in terms of telescopes and satellites and and and, and this idea that there really was life out on other planets. And he and Kubrick were all Kubrick was always keeping up with. Let's see, have the Russians picked up a signal, and who's picked up this, and who's picked up that? He was so worried that they were going to discover alien life before this movie was released that he took out an insurance policy in case they scooped his movie. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that was kind of interesting, that that was his big – that was his concern about meeting alien life was that it would – it would uh, overshadow his film. He would have been out there, right, Bill? <laughs> yeah, right. It seems like he'd have other things to think about, but, you know, whatever. So, Bill, let's uh, let's go to you because this was your first viewing as well and uh, your, like, first impressions of the movie. Well, it's funny because normally when I go to watch a movie, I do a whack load of research. I want to know the actors, what they've been in. I, obviously, I knew stuff about Kubrick. I went in almost blind purposefully and it's not that i was not uh, it's not that i didn't know about the movie my whole life i've known about it but coming into this i was never a big i'm and i'm still to this day i'm not a big uh, spacey sci-fi kind of guy i i appreciate sci-fi i like horror i like the fantastic elements to it but it's one that i've just kind of had in the back burner i knew at some point in my life i'd get to it and this quite frankly was an excuse to watch it so i didn't know anything about the story I didn't know anything about the pacing. I didn't know anything about the actors. I just knew it was a Kubrick epic, and it was long. That's pretty much all I knew. So I and those I, are the two things you knew when it was over. And, that's, <laughs> and I think I'm going to be a good counter a good counterpoint in a lot of this discussion because I'm going to be that guy that at the end of the film went, "Huh?" <laughs> Scratch your head. Yeah, because it's not that I disliked the film. Because I do appreciate, 
you know, the uh, craftsmanship it took to make this. And it's very obvious that Kubrick is a type A gold personality that everything has to be done his way. And I can see him shooting those monkeys or those uh, humanoid scenes at the beginning 80 times before he got it just right. Like, that's Kubrick. Until the actors pass out. <laughs> it's very much like a Jason and the Argonauts. How many times did they shoot the skeleton right. scene? I kind of do. You're, you're going to eat your lunch in the suit. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, I, I, I'm that guy that did find, yeah, there were a lot of slow parts to that film. And I do like a slow burn if it gives you the payoff in the end. But sometimes I question, is there going to be a payoff? Because, you know, like they would go on and on and on. And you could easily fast forward through 10 minutes and really not miss all that much for certain parts of the film. Having said that, the story is very engaging and beautifully shot. Like for 1968, this would have been probably the most money you could spend on the film quality, the sound, the soundtrack. His attention to detail, I was paying attention to things like the outfits that the astronauts were wearing. Uh, how intricate were these spaceships? Uh, how realistic did space itself look? How good were the buttons and lights and knobs on Hal? And it was incredible how much detail he had on it. And I even like the part at the beginning when the astronauts are sitting around kind of in the lounge and just shooting the, shooting the fat back and forth, chewing the fat, because it kind of humanized it a bit. I didn't think there was enough humanization in the film from part to part. And I like that part at the beginning where they're discussing, oh, I hear there's problems on that planet. Oh, I don't know. I got to go up there and see. And that part I liked. But the and, and so at the end of the film, I scratched my head and I definitely think I need to watch it again because my initial reaction was, really, this is what the big fuss is about? But then I was, talk, I was talking to my custodian at school, my buddy Chris, great guy. And he goes, Bill, put your head that you're in 1968 and then you watch the film. And I was like, you know what? That makes a heck of a lot of sense. <laughs> Imagine you like, were spoiled with the hi-fi, the blasting sound, the Star Wars, the Jurassic Park. And, but if you put yourself in 1968, all you've got maybe is Harryhausen or the Universal films. And then this just kind of, wow. Right, you so, previously had Day the Earth Stood Still, also a great movie, but, you know, in Earth versus the Flying Saucers, those are your sci-fi movies. <laughs> exactly. Or even for, like, effect-wise. Right. Like, I mean, Gone with the Wind had some kind of cool effects in the 30s, and we're talking 1968 now. So, But it's funny you mentioned the drug thing, because I specifically mentioning to you, Nathan, when I texted you, I said, I should have gotten high before I watched this film. <laughs> and I was like, you don't need to, really. <laughs> you, you don't need to, but you can just imagine the right. synapses flowing, you know, and popping as you watch this, especially when they're out in space and he's going out to get his buddy from space and he's bringing him back in and he's in the ship. It would have been amazing to have your senses at their peak, watching this in a huge screen with the sound coming and the lights in the theater. And so it's definitely worth a second one, but I'd love to see it with a TV better than mine, with speakers better than mine. <laughs> so uh, I, I would I would definitely recommend the film, but it's not necessarily a go to film if you're not in the mood for it. I think all of that is fair. Um, and, you know, Bill, I makes. A lot of things you said make me very interested in what you would what you will think of 2010 a space. Uh, I mean, the year we make contact. And I think, Dave, you probably agree that a lot of what you said, Bill, I think I think you'll find a lot to enjoy in that follow up and that sequel. Right. Um, I would think so. I, I agree with that. Absolutely. 
And I think one of the things that um, definitely is true, and I did get a chance to see this on the big screen when they re-released it a few years ago. So I didn't didn't get to go, but I did get to go see it at the theater. And I don't know if anyone, any of you guys have seen it at the theater, but it is an overwhelming kind of experience. And I actually remember getting up right before the fourth segment started because there were very few people in the theater and just moving up to the first two or three seats (laughs) when that Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite sequence uh, begins. Wow. So, Dave, how about you? Yeah, uh, for me, the, actually, the first time I saw this, I'm thinking of it now, a 1968 movie. I saw the movie for the first time when it was 17 years old. I saw it in 1985. Mm-hmm. I was very lucky to have found a video store. And I've talked about this before on the show that um, in my little town, this was when, when you know, video stores, rental, rental palaces were, were booming. You know, they were everywhere. Every strip mall had a, had a different video store. Well, I happened to find one in my town that had movies that the other ones didn't. The other ones were focusing on all the newer releases. And that that because that's where the money was. This one must have been run by a cinephile because he had films in there like uh, I, I saw um, uh, Midnight Cowboy and Mean Streets and A Clockwork Orange for the first time and True Grit. All these movies, um, uh, Straw Dogs by Sam Peckham. Which were not yeah. easily available on they weren't. VHS they were, to rent back in that time. They time. were not. No, they were not. And he had 2001 A Space Odyssey. So all of these films that I had been reading about, that I'd heard about, and I thought, well, I, I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to see them. This video store had them. And I, that was when I rented and I got to see 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now, my first reaction was I was blown away by the visuals. I thought it was amazing. And, and, this, is, and this was after Star Wars. You know, this is, what, uh, this is after the t- initial trilogy from 2001. But what really got me as I was watching it was, you know, when, when you, the, the way that it's done, yes, it's slow. There's a there's a, a, a I guess a, a very deliberate pacing to the film that 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 Kubrick uh, you know sort of employed as he was as he was making it, but it's almost as if he was admiring the wonders of space, you know where, where he was just sort of taking it all in. I mean that that whole sequence at the beginning where the ship is docking with that with that space station is spinning, and has to match its its uh, the the turn in order to go in and, and to look as if it's going in straight. And then a scene later on where, where, where a stewardess on, on one of the shuttles is, is climbing, yeah. you know, walking up the side in order to go in a door upside down to give the pilots their dinner um, and, and how he was able to film that. It's, it's almost as if Kubrick really just attached to, to, the, to the, the, the sort of magic, the wonders of being out in space and wanted to show that to to people who had no ideas, you know, and and when you're looking at it, this really is science fiction. I mean, that's what really separates science fiction from sort of fantasy. When you look at Star Wars, it's fantasy. You know, the the, the planet of what was it of um, uh, Tatooine, Tatooine, which is which is total, which is a totally like desert planet. Well, okay, how do they have oxygen if it's a desert planet? You know, it's sort of fantasy. Whereas in with Star Trek and 2001: Space Odyssey. There's that video phone sequence. Well, everybody talks on, on, you know, we have our phones now that we could do, we could do video chats on. And something Kubrick would have never even, even, uh, you know, wouldn't have even been a possibility in 1968. But yet there it is. There's a video phone in 1968, you know, calling from the moon down to earth. Um, you get that in, in this film and, and, and knowing the way that Kubrick worked, 
the, the type of filmmaker he was. There's an awesome documentary that came out a couple of years ago called Film Worker. And it was it was um, it was put out by uh, what's his name? Leon, uh, Leon Vitale. He's an actor. He played the stepson of Barry Lyndon in Barry Lyndon, um, the one who he has the duel with. He became Kubrick's personal assistant after that movie through the rest of his career and also helped oversee the re, um, uh, I guess the, um, uh, you know, the uh, uh, remasters of the earlier films as well. And it's an awesome documentary where he just talks about Kubrick and, and you know, the, the, the type of filmmaker he was. And it's, it's made, you know, he, he loves the guy. He, he, to this day, he just admires the hell out of Kubrick and, and, and thanked him so much for, for sort of giving him this career in film. But it also has stories in there about the way Kubrick was, just how meticulous he was and how driven he was. I mean, that's why he made so few films and they took so long to make is that that was the type of filmmaker he was. I mean, I saw somewhere where it was um, 50 years ago in 1970 that they started filming. You know, someone said it was 50 years ago this month they started filming A Clockwork Orange. Well, Clockwork Orange didn't come out until 1972. Mm. You know, and so that's the type of filmmaker he was. He just, he took his time. He wanted to get it right. And I think with 2001, you see that. You see that the research that he put into the, these films and just the, the, what he um, the amount of time and the amount of energy he put in that set where where the guy's running um, and it's sort of going around the set and he's running past. Um, what was that on, on the on the ship on uh, as, as it was heading out into space? And it was um, he's basically run on the treadmill sort on, of on the sense. treadmill right. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. that set cost, circular. Yes. <laughs> That set cost seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars to 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 make that. But that's what Kubrick wanted. That's what he demanded. This is my all time favorite sci fi movie. It is. And and it's every time I see it, I just love it a little bit more. You know, it's it's one of those things where I don't know that I'm necessarily discovering new things. You know, I'm not I'm not finding new things in it at this point. But I'm sort of rekindling my my love affair with what what is in the film and and just how much Kubrick put into this movie and like he puts into all of his films he uh, you know he really does I read I have a, a what was it a, I have a, a movie yearbook from 19 I don't know if it's from 84 85 I have two of them they have a list of quotes and one of them was Jack Nicholson it's like define Kubrick. Um, brings new meaning to the word meticulous. And I've used that word a few times already. That is what Stanley Kubrick was. That was his style of filmmaking was he would just take his time until he got exactly what he wanted. And I think you see that in all of his movies and you definitely see that in 2001 A Space Odyssey because it almost as if it's the beauty of space. It's, it's the perfection of space. You know, and I, I remember Ridley Scott talking about one of the things he liked about Star Wars was it showed sort of the the workman side, like with Han Solo and the Millennium Falcon. He had to bang the ship in order to get it to start working right, you know. And then and then he said when it got to Alien, it, he basically was truck drivers in space, you know. But with Kubrick, it's just that that majesty and that sort of perfection of space that he was trying to capture. And I think he did it uh, brilliantly. We'll get into the story um, and where I started to pick up because I didn't really understand it the first time I saw it either. And it took a few viewings. And even then I was like, I didn't really know what was going on, 
Um, but once we get into talking about um, the next movie, um, I can sort of, uh, you know, give the story of how I started to figure it out, which, um, you know, was the help from some from somebody else giving me assistance uh, to, to, to sort of pick up on the movie. Now I see it and it's, it's obvious to me. Um, but anyway, that that was my first that that's my impression, even to this day of the movie. And my first impression, too, was I just loved the way it looked and I loved the way that it presented space as just your sort of wonder, you know, like it like like. Kubrick as if he was the first one on a spaceship going out, like going out, looking at space and taking it all in. And I love that about the film. It's funny you talk about the meticulousness. Can you imagine being an actor on one of his oh, you, movies? Ask Shelley Duvall. Shelley, ask Shelley Duvall. You know, watch the, watch the footage that Kubrick's daughter shot on the set of The Shining. And you will see that Shelley Duvall was in hell. During the making, that scene it supposedly makes you mad at him. Honestly, it, it does. It does because she does. He does not treat her well. And and you and the scene where where she was um, swinging the bat at Jack Nicholson as he's walking up the stairs, I think that holds the Guinness record because Kubrick made them do that scene like something like 119 times until he finally got Shelley Duvall to the point of total exhaustion which is what he was going for in the scene. Um, he said, look, my hair's falling out. And he's like, well, not all of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's, it's, what was it? I think, I think that I read somewhere that there was like nearly a million feet of film shot for 2001 or something like that, or not maybe a million, but there was a lot of film shot and it was much more than they used at, at, at the end. Um, and also one of the things that I thought was really interesting about 2010, the sequel was Cooper destroyed all the models and all everything that had to do with 2001 because that was his way of working. Once he was done, he had his assistants destroy all of the miniatures for 2001. And He's not a sentimental recreate, guy. No, not at all. They had to recreate it for 2010, and I thought they did a hell of a job. We'll get into that when we get into, into that movie, but they had nothing to go back on. They, they couldn't say, okay, oh, look, we got the original set. We got the original model. We got the original. No, they had none of that. Kubrick said, tear it all down, destroy it all, because that was his way of working. Um, but, yeah, so anyway, I, I'm going on here, but that was my first impression of, of 2001, and it is the, probably one of the key reasons that multiple viewings it has become my favorite um, sci-fi movie of all time. Although, and I've said this before, as much as I love 2001, and it is my favorite sci-fi movie, I've probably seen Plan 9 from Outer Space twice as much as I've seen 2001 <laughs> Space Odyssey. <laughs> That, that is awesome. <laughs> they're on par, aren't they? No, not not quite on par. You know, here here you've got you've got Kubrick seven hundred fifty thousand dollars set, and in Plan Nine you've got spaceships on uh, on fishing wire. But, but you know. they had the same sort of insane passion. Yes, but the filmmaker behind it, the yeah. just, one of them had an incredible skill. One of them. Sadly, did not. Had, a, had an incredible <laughs> desire to make movies. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, um, yeah, well, it's like Unbreakable, right? They're on the polar opposite ends of one another. They're the yin and the yang of the right. science fiction universe. Exactly, exactly. It, it, it's an amazing movie. And I. it's funny, Greg, that you said, like, one of the first things I think you said was you feel almost like you're watching a documentary. And as a kid, it's funny because as a kid I actually saw – 2010 first because it did come out like you uh 1984 or 1985 so i do remember 
seeing previews for it and 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 watching that one. And my parents had seen 2001, but they're, they're like, it's pretty boring, Nathan. Not a lot happens. It's people floating in space. <laughs> sort of how it was categorized to me. And they're like, we'll just we'll explain what you need to know. And we'll watch this one. <laughs> and that's kind of what we did. And so, of course, when I saw 2010 and when it came out for those people who had seen 2001, it was a bit of a disappointment. But I thought 2010 was an, an amazing science fiction movie because I hadn't seen the other one yet. And when I finally see it, which is a few years later, I, I, I'm watching – I see it on PBS. PBS is playing it late at night. And when I turned it on, I thought I was watching like a documentary at yeah. first, like those recreations, you know, where they're like – uh, I thought I was seeing the beginning of a David Attenborough special that was talking about, you know, like ancient man. And suddenly I'm like, this is going on for a long time and nobody <laughs> is talking. <Yeah>. And, <laughs> and and you're right. And on one hand, it's absolutely true that from a narrative perspective, if you're trying to get this movie down and distill it into its beats, you can absolutely cut a lot of this. Oh, yeah. But something that dave said it's almost like kubrick is going out there with a camera it's almost like he is envisioning hey this is these are what these worlds look like and now that i've created them i'm just going to go through them as if i were a documentary filmmaker as if i'm going to I'm, I'm walking into this world and i'm i'm gathering as much information as i can to bring back to you and show you what it's like you know almost that time traveler idea right like he made everything. I think that's the meticulousness. Even in the in movies like The Shining, he wants to make it so real that when Stephen King or somebody looks at it, they're like, "Well, what did you do with my story?" He just wants to put you in the head of somebody going insane. He wants to put you in the in the mindset of the uh, of the country burning to the ground in 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 Doctor Strangelove. You know, he wants to create a world for you to inhabit, and then the story is kind of like, "Well, if you get it, you get it." But it's no. not like there's a lot of story there, truthfully. This a lot of people like, you know, well, maybe you didn't get it. Well, th there's not a lot to get in a in an intellectual way, I think, in 2001 A Space Odyssey. I think it's a lot about feeling, about emotions. That's why it people found it to be the perfect drug movie, because if you're overstimulated watching this, that's perfect, because you can watch 30 <laughs> minutes of apes smash, smash bones you, into the yeah. crystal. You you can watch you can watch the apes and then, and then that whole final segment of going into the monolith and um, uh, when, when David Bowman goes into the monolith and and what Kubrick is sort of creating with that you just get the feeling that that he himself was just so amazed by these visuals that he was thrilled to throw them in, throw them into the movie and that's a long segment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I looked at, you know, I, I, I had sort of checked out the time, um, this, this last viewing, and I know I've done it before, but that, it, at the two hours, it's, a, it's what, two hours and 30 some minutes, the movie altogether. It's right around the two hour mark that David Bowman goes into the monolith. Yeah. That tells yeah. you like the last 38 minutes, that is all just visual stimulation. Yeah. And most of it is when he's flying through all that stuff, uh, yes. through, through the Stargate and he's. He's starting to, you know, it's we all did that that mind bending episode of Land of the Creeps. But you, if you took the tripping moments from all the movies we watched and combined them and distilled them, they'd probably still be shorter. This is like the longest sustained yeah. <laughs> acid trippy kind of thing I've ever seen on film. Like for how long it continues, unabated, yeah. where it's just right. visuals. The connection I made with it as I watched was Pink Floyd The Wall. Yeah, that's a that, good connection. Yeah, that well, was Pink my connection. Floyd, yeah, any Pink Floyd, but you're right. The Wall, the, well, I mean, The Wall is my all-time favorite album, but you're right. Any like Pink Floyd, 
would have been the perfect soundtrack, I think, mm-hmm. for 2001. It, it really would have, because they would have, uh, th- their music would have matched those visuals in, in a big way. And but every was, uh, stoner kid I knew in high school watched two movies regularly. One was Adrian Lin's movie version of The Wall, and the other one was 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, I, scene, I the, the scenes where the forks were walking and all that, I could easily see that inserted into a Kubrick film. Yeah, yeah yep. that's, that's true. Yep. I that swear, though, honest, it didn't happen until about 16 years after the release of this film. But what would have put this film over the edge would have been Ric Flair coming out doing his woo. I mean, I know it would have been about 16 <laughs> years today. <laughs> woo! But, but that oh my God, it's full of stars. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> that would have took 2001 Space Odyssey over the hump. That would have been, it would have been epic, man. It would just, right. I'm just you saying. need to do a video, Greg, where you just see Dave Bowman's face frozen. You know, those flash freezes in between the, all the crazies up and just, woo! woo, woo. <laughs> <laughs> put some of that up. Uh, that, that these, these get, per, get Pearl on that. I just want to throw a real quick, Nathan. I think it was Alan Parker that did Pink Floyd. Oh, yeah. thank you. Not Adrian Lynn. You're right, Alan right. Parker. Thank you very much. I was gonna say, yep. did we did we want to go over kind of the actors in it? Um, yeah, we we can in a moment. The last thing I want to say just about the uh, maybe the first time I watched it was when I saw it. It was it wasn't that dissimilar, I think, from some of what, what you guys are saying, where you're sort of taken in by I can't stop watching this, but where is it going? Is it going anywhere? Every sequence seems like it's everyone is poised on the on the precipice of discovering something without quite the discovery and yet you know it's it's not like any other science fiction i've movie i've seen because it isn't it isn't chugging along to get to a destination it's not really trying to wow you in the moment in terms of like a action and pacing it's just trying to immerse you in this sense of wonder and you know at that point in time as a kid i'm used to so the Spielberg wonder, which is which is great in its own right, but it's it's big and it's flashy and it gets you there and it moves on to the next one. And this was very, very different. So I didn't I didn't digest it all at one time. And it, I was sort of thought, yep, you know what, I'll go back and watch 2010 again. But over time, you just come to realize what an achievement it is. And I think it's because it is it is singularly cinematic in that this movie gives you things that you couldn't quite get from just reading a book. That you couldn't quite get from other experiences. It is, it is all almost purely cinematic in that it is giving you this. The feelings and the emotions it's giving you come from all of these facets of the sound, the music design, everything together. Some movies are just a bunch of people talking. Some movies are action scenes and things that you could quite frankly get out of a video game. 2001 is just uniquely and to me perfectly cinematic, and it's taking the medium and saying. We really couldn't do this any other way. You couldn't get this from a radio broadcast of this. You couldn't get it from just reading uh, Clark's book. This is going to take you somewhere that only the movies can do, particularly at that point in time. Yeah. Now, Nathan, I was going to yeah. say, Nathan, have you read the original short story this is based on? I have. And it's in. And what's interesting about it is it really almost only deals with the moment where the monolith is, is uh, discovered on – is it Tycho, the moon – that when they find that monolith and it sort of wakes up in a sense and everything that happens in the, and it, that, that the transmission going on, that's about all the story covers. Again, it's humanity on the precipice of about to discover how big the universe really is and what role they really play in it. And at most everything that happens in 2001 A Space Odyssey 
is not in that story. That's just the catalyst, a jumping off point. The novel 2001 is something that, that Clark puts together while he's writing the script for this. So he and Stanley Kubrick really develop what 2001 is together. So it isn't just it isn't Kubrick taking the short story and just adapting it. He's using it really as a jumping off point. And then he, he and Clark go on that journey sort of together, which I think so, is really cool. So could you say that 2001 is an extrapolation of Kubrick's imagination? Yeah, I think so. And if you look at – you hear how he and Clark work together. Clark was basically like, if you if you can describe it to me, I can write it, and then we can go from there. <laughs> yeah, that, and, and, and you can see that in this movie. You know what it's very interesting because there's another sci-fi movie that you definitely see Kubrick in, and it was one that he was going to make, and that's Steven Spielberg's AI, Artificial oh. Intelligence. That was originally a, a Stanley Kubrick movie, but as Kubrick was developing it, he said, he's, you know, he and him and Spielberg were friends at this point, he said, Steven, I think this is really more along your lines. I don't think this is my type of movie. I think this is more of your kind of movie. But yet, when you watch AI, there are kubrick-esque moments in that film it's a very interesting blend of kubrick and spielberg in i think that that's movie. a really underrated movie actually ai that, yeah. that would be its own podcast too and it is you're right they're so dual they're, they're so different you know spielberg is essentially a very hopeful filmmaker right i think by and large and kubrick is not mm -hmm. uh, although you know i think he wanted to be but he just it's not quite how he approached things. You know, they have a quote when he was talking about making this movie that goes back to the documentary perspective where he says, well, I was trying to kind of make this about the search for God. But so the people didn't roll their eyes and think, oh, this is also outlandish. I wanted to ground it so much in like documentary feel and, 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 and in facts and in this is the mundane hubbub of this future world that by the time you got to the end, you were pretty much thinking this all feels completely realistic to me. And then so right. then you recognize that it's not so that the concept of God is couched in scientific, realistic terms. And so I think that was very interesting because it, that's why it feels so much like a science fiction movie. He refuses to make it seem fantastical or wondrous. And that's all Spielberg. I mean, that's what Spielberg kind of made his craft in. Right. Was making these right. moments of, of mystery and wonder. But so those, AI those is great moments like in like close encounters, the, the, the shit like the, the, the headlights coming behind the truck and then going up and yeah. and E.T., the bicycle riding across the sky and Jurassic Park. The first time they see the dinosaurs, that's Spielberg. That's that yeah. Spielberg sort of capturing the wonder. Of it and, and and I think Kubrick does capture the wonder of space here. That's what I've said, but it is it's not quite like a Spielberg wonder with mm. the dramatic music and everything. I don't I don't even know if there's much other than you know of the few musical cues in this. And um, was it also Sprock that was Zarathustra, which is what you think of when you think of two right, from Strauss and right. And, you and think of it as the theme to 2001, exactly. Right? That's what you think. It. You don't, but. And then, but then Swan Lake, which is a much more popular, uh, um, you know, musical piece. I still think of 2001. I still see the space out. station rotating. Yeah, exactly, so exactly. And 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 so he's got that, but but it's not so much that. It's like capturing the wonder in a, in a very sanitized sort of way, whereas Spielberg is trying to just just like win your heart and and just and just uh, you know uh, whisk you off. 
Kubrick's doing the same thing, but in a much, with a much different aim and in a much different way, I think. So I think we, we can talk about the actors and the segments. One thing I wanted to talk before we go into each segment of the film is a quote that Stephen King made. And of course, we all know that Stephen King uh, didn't have the greatest view of Kubrick's final version of The Shining that he delivered. Right. It is very different from King's book. But one of the things that King said, he says, it's like a really beautiful classic car. And then I realized there's no engine in it, you know, and that it, his his huh. statement was that it felt empty. You know, he said in my version of The Shining, the house burns down, uh, but in or in the hotel burns down. But in Kubrick's version, it freezes. And he says, that's to me the difference. There's no warmth to it. And uh, I think that a lot of what he says there are criticisms I've heard labeled at 2001. But that concept of the wonder, an interesting thought I, I had is, OK, he's saying this the car has no engine. I think a Kubrick intends for the viewer to be the engine in all right. of his movies. Yeah. They're the one that's going to bring bring enough experience and bring their own perspective to it to jumpstart this. And suddenly now it's revving and it's going and now you can appreciate it. But you kind of have to do some of that. Not not heavy lifting, but I guess. The wonder in a Spielberg movie is we've got the music going, we've got the lights, we have everything, and it's just washing over us. Kubrick's wonder is the wonder you have when you walk outside and watch a hummingbird for a few minutes hover over a flower, you know. But you watch it long enough that you gain an appreciation for it. I think that's what he's doing here. When you watch these spaceships move along slowly for 10 or 15 minutes, there's a sense of a thing just being what it is in front of your eyes long enough that you're just sort of taken with it, you know. It's almost – you're, you know, you have no other choice but to admire it. It's right there in front of you, and it isn't going anywhere. I mean, now I was thinking of movies and special effects, whether you're talking about creatures or spaceships, they zoom and they're gone, and you're like, what did I, did I just see that? And was it CGI? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I agree with you. I agree 100%. I, I think that's what he's going for. You know, it, it um, there is definitely something going on here. And once you once you know it, I mean, once I found out what it was, I was kind of kicking myself for not knowing it before because it seemed fairly obvious to me what was going on here with this monolith and with, uh, you know, with everything else going uh, uh, sort of leading up to that final scene uh, with, with David Bowman. 2010 does a good job of laying it out, I think. Um, yeah, the more human-driven story. Exactly, the more human-driven story, and it's very interesting because, well, again, we'll get into we'll get into 2010, but I don't know. Uh, I, I'm guessing, uh, you know, Nathan, if you could, if you were, if you were to put money on it, would you say there's more dialogue in the first 20 minutes of 20 of 20 of 2010 than there is in the entirety of 2001? I'd say for sure. I mean, it's certainly with these these segments. And I think that's a very interesting thing because Kubrick apparently told Clark, he's like, I want this, I want this, I want the future to look empty. I want it to look sort of, um, I don't want it to look warm and populated. And that comes down to the dialogue too. And it's funny because people, uh, other sci-fi authors of the time that I really admire, people like Ray Bradbury, he's like, well, I didn't, I loved the view, vision of this, but the dialogue, I just didn't care if David, uh, uh, David Bowman lived or died. And it's like, well, that's, I don't know that that was not Kubrick's intention. You know what I mean? I'm right. not sure. And there's a thing about the humanity that Bill mentioned. So I want to get to that. I'm going to read one 
one of the quotes I have here, this is from George Lucas, who, of course, does Star Wars 10 years later. And he's talking about 2001. He says it's extremely subtle. It's extremely visual. And the story is razor thin. He says it's the first time people really took science fiction seriously. He made the ultimate science fiction movie. I think what's interesting about the thing that Lucas says that is obviously true, but you don't really think about it, saying the story is razor thin. Not just that it's thin or it's slight, but it's razor thin, almost like it makes it sharper for being so thin, for being so basic that if you sit there and put all the pieces together, oh, okay, I get it. So let's talk about the fact, first off, there are there are really four segments. Would you guys say there are four segments to this movie? Uh, yeah. That you absolutely. break down? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And they, they, were even, they, they were even nice enough to put title cards for each segment. <laughs> right. But there are right. four segments, but only three title cards. Which, sure. which I think was one of the first, like when I was watching the first time, it's like the dawn of man obviously feels like it should end when the apes go away, but it could, it continues all the way through the first discovery of the monolith up until yes. the Jupiter mission. And there's and, a reason, there is a reason for that. There is a reason for that. And I thought that was really pretty cool that, that he did that because originally you think that cut of, of throwing the bone in the air and it transforming into a spaceship it's mm-hmm. probably one of the biggest time jumps as far as a cut, maybe a movie history, you know, from 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 the dawn of man up until the space age and, and like in advance at this point, many years in the future. But yet you're still at as far as the story with regards to. And again, I guess we're getting into a little bit of spoiler territory here. The Which story with regards to the monolith, mm-hmm. it has not gotten to the point where it's the next stage with this monolith. So a couple things about that first segment. What did you guys think about the ape costumes and the ape sequence and how that's all handled? We do spend a lot of time with those apes. In some ways, that might, to me, be the slow – Not I'm not saying the least interesting, but it's definitely perhaps one of the slowest segments because for a while there, you're just kind of watching them have a really hard time of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say it's fun. Yeah. Go ahead, Dave. Go ahead, Dave. No, no, go ahead. You, you I was, first. I was just, just going to say that going into it, one of those, that section was one of my most interesting because I take it from a history point of view, and I, I wanted to see where it was going because mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of like the tribal culture and, you know, it's basically a peeing contest to see who it's, you know, one side versus the other and how it was going to play. I really wanted to know what was the connect between that and space, mm-hmm. because having not seen it before, I was like, where is this going? I'm really curious how the connection's going to be made. So it was very interesting to see as the film went on, the yeah. connect between these things pounding on their chest and killing each other to where it eventually went. And and that was, I agree with you too. And I was thinking Nathan, as well as with the costumes. I mean, I, I've got to give them major props. I mean, if you watch the film and really watch the film, you can tell that a lot of these are human by the way that their leg movements are. And if you really watch, I was blown away with the, the costumes of these apes, like freaking blown away. But I'm sitting here watching them, and then you see the monolith, and you're watching what their motions were like, and they're, you know, how they're kind of hesitant, and they're like, "What is this thing?" And and the the ape like, I guess you would call, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but their their mannerism of trying to figure out what in the world this is, and it, it was so precise. Like I would think that's exactly the way it would be. Like if you fell asleep and then you woke up and saw this big black mass of a board or whatever you want to call it in front of you and you're staring at it like what is this how would you react 
and I, I thought it was marvelous, man. I just, I, I agree, Bill. This was one of my favorite parts was the opening. There again, I do like National Geographic, and I do like animals, and I like stuff like that. So I found that intriguing. Uh, so, yeah, I, I love the opening of it. And it's funny because I think in some ways you care – you care for the that group of 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 apes of of uh, you know proto man almost yeah. as much as or even a little bit more maybe than you care for the astronauts later on and I don't know that that's not by design either you know you're like you're watching them kind of get picked off and they're not you know it's just not working out for them and then like you said Greg one of the most amazing moments I think in the movie is when they wake up and it's right there in their midst yeah. and. It's in right. the Kubrick captures not just the idea they wake up and they're like, oh, what is this? But that maybe they've never even had the thought. What is this? That their mind has yeah. not even been able to comprehend a difference in their surroundings until it's, the monolith sparks it. Yeah. And the fact right. that the bone, like the first grab of the bone and he kind of accidentally drops. And then he's like, you know, you see the ape sitting thinking his mind and he starts beating it slowly. And then it's like. Oh wait, this I could use this, and you can see it in the eyes and the motion. His like, moment of triumph. He's like, now we're gonna, now now we're gonna show yeah. him victory. <laughs> and right. the next next thing that happens, it goes inside someone's head. <laughs> right. Yeah. That 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 was yeah. That and it's it's funny because Birth that really shank. yeah <laughs> that that is where and that's why the segments are separated the way that they are. I mean that was the monolith again. Uh, we're going into spoilers here. This that was the monolith's first appearance. It was almost as if and that was pushing man onto the next stage of evolution, which was hunting and yeah. and learning how to learning how to defend himself. Because the whole first part of the movie, these these the, you know, man is just is being picked off by saber tooth tigers sitting in the dark, cowering at night, listening to the howls in the distance. The monolith appears. All of a sudden, there's some courage there. Now there's now there's fight. Now we can kill to live. Now we can kill to, you know, we can kill our enemies. Um, but then the reason that that segment is all part of the it's all part of the same was because then the next stage was on the moon. Mm -hmm. It was the monolith. You know, they, they find something buried on uh, Tycho um, uh, on, on the moon. And when it's finally uncovered, there's a signal that's sent off. You know, there's just a loud noise. But what they don't pick up is that's a signal going off into space like, OK, this planet has reached its next level of evolution. They have reached their nearest satellite. They have gone. They have mastered space travel. They have mastered, you know, boom. Then it goes off. Then the next segment picks up 18 months later with the ship heading out into Jupiter because there's another monolith out there. Yeah. So it's it's I love that I love that about the movie that even though there's that giant leap from dawn of man from from prehistoric times to space travel, as far as mankind is concerned, that's all the same era. At least as far as the monolith, at least as far as this the, like the story of the monolith is concerned, it's all the same era until they make that discovery on the moon, and that's where it goes off into the next one. Then the third one where it's like David Bowman saying, "Okay, I'm going into the monolith." To see what's what's going on here, um, yeah, I, I absolutely love that. And that transition shot is one of the most amazing in film history. I think where you know where that you yes. see the bone go up and everything that is conveyed. And yet, like you said, the concept of time and space in this film, Kubrick had also said at one point, you know, that this is almost like that first shot of the film and all is so breathtaking and amazing, right? That the first time we hear that piece of classical music, first time we hear Zarathustra. 
you see the the alignment right of the earth and the moon and the sun yes and yes. and that almost god's eye view of the of of the galaxy right and then this how small a little dip it is for for humankind to come from this one space all of our human history and then beyond if you're in 1968 is encompassed in that one hurl of the bone and yet that's all it's kind of viewed as from this monolith from the aliens perspective right is this small blip it's every sequence of this if you think about it is man poised on the set on the brink poised on the brink of a new discovery you know in yes. in, in mm-hmm. 2010 they're poised on the brink of destruction you know humanity is in a little bit and yet in this yep. one it's on the brink of something big something kind of um something that's going to be incredible and but also yes. mysterious and also you know we don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing and then they really get the first actor who who has any dialogue is uh william sylvester right is is haywood mm-hmm. Floyd comes into the story yep. and who is actually although he's played by roy scheider he's a huge part of 2010 uh, the 2010 movie you know he's the main character really but you wouldn't and, get and that much from different, seeing him much, here no because it's a much different sort of character you know, and maybe it was because of what happened to him. You could sort of, they sort of, in 2010, um, after the events of 2001, uh, Haywood Floyd's life sort of fell, you know, fell apart a little bit. And so you can see that the way Roy Scheider plays him is very much a Roy Scheider character. It's almost like Brody from Jaws in a way. It's almost like Brody. Like if you just keep thinking to yourself, what happened to this guy? Oh, you know, he let a shark eat half of his town before. Right, right. That's that's that feeling. Exactly. You're right. Because my son said the same thing. It's like, it's kind of like just watching Chief Chief Brody. I said, that's what they want you to think. (laughs) Right. Yes. You you get that. That's Roy Scheider in this. But it's funny how, but that's the same character that William Sylvester played. And William Sylvester plays a much different character, sort of Haywood Floyd in 2001 a space odyssey um one thing i always said there's one scene that always stays with with the scene where he's walking through and he runs into that russian delegation and his very good friend elena is there and he stops to talk with them and they're questioning him about um, what's going on on tycho and he can't really talk about it and there's this sort of tension between them because they need to know and he's not really talking about it um the woman who plays elena is, is margaret tyzak and she was also in A Clockwork Orange. She had a very small role in A Clockwork Orange. So she was in a couple of Kubrick's films. But every time I see her, I think of I, Claudius, the miniseries um, <laughs> from the BBC, because she played Antonia, Claudius's mother, in that, in that miniseries. So every time I see Margaret Tyzak, that's what I think. And I saw both of those movies before I saw I, Claudius. It's just very interesting because I said, oh, my God, that's Margaret Tyzak. I never would have put it together because it's such a small part. She has such a small role in 2001 and an even smaller role in Clockwork Orange. Yeah. And to Dave's, uh, not to Dave, but to Bill's point earlier about the kind of, he wanted more human, he wanted more humanist. It's, that's one of the things here. The actors intentionally, so they aren't meant to stand out or feel human. I think that's the real difference between Haywood Floyd in this film and the other is not necessarily the difference or, or warmness or life, lack of warmth between William Sylvester and R- Roy Schneider, but it's rather the difference in how, you know, Peter Hyams, who directed that film, and, and Kubrick, who directed this one, specifically doesn't want Floyd, I think, to feel particularly human or to feel that the, his humanity has ebbed or, you know, I think he wants us to be overwhelmed by the technology compared to the humans in every single sequence, including I, this I, one. 
I agree with you because it's a, just a very different sort of character. Even that discussion he's having with his daughter. On the, the humans can almost be phone. furniture, you know, in the, that yes. opening scene where they're yes. walking in that that area and and whatnot, and they almost are just like watching little dioramas. You you'd almost feel like you'd be at Disney right on a ride coming through, and here comes the stewardess, and right now they're in this scene, but they don't mean anything really. They they don't because that scene I was talking about with with the Russians. In any other movie, you know, a director might be cutting back and forth and getting close-ups of the eyes and dramatic music playing because it is a tense exchange. If you think about what's being said, the Russians are trying to press for information. There's something going on there, and, and the Americans are not telling us about it. Haywood Floyd, they know, knows what's going on. He's sort of pretending like he doesn't. And then it finally, he finally says, I'm not at liberty to discuss this. That is a tense exchange, but Kubrick does not film it as a tense exchange. It's a static camera just looking on because he's just as interested in what as what's in the background as he is as what's happening in the foreground. That sort of sterile view of this space station as he is as to what they're discussing. But you're right. When it gets to Peter Hyams movie, that tension becomes that's at the forefront. And uh Greg and Bill, did you guys have any other thoughts about like this segment? And even leading up to the one that happens on the moon where they discover it, and then we have that very unnerving music as the monolith is is there before them. Thoughts on this segment, that whole, the second part of the Dawn of Man, now that we're in the, the quote-unquote future at that point? Well, as I mentioned before, I liked the part where they were talking kind of before he went off into space, because it kind of brought a bit of human touch to it because i don't know about you guys but my opinion of the actors in this film is they're just there to further the plot they're not really there to get a backstory of they're not really there to like or dislike they're just there to get you to the end and and that's kind of what i got out of it but it's funny the one thing i did write down knowing very little about it as i said are the sets of this film inspiration in star wars just in the complexity, in the detail, in the vastness of the mm-hmm. sets. You can you can almost see where Spielberg said, ah, I like that, okay. Uh, George Lucas, ah, I like that, okay. And things are plucked off of it from that opening, you know, 45 minutes, or the second after the chimps. I, I thought that that was interesting. And, and to go back to the uh, humanoid at the beginning, was I the only one that enjoyed the scene where the, where the early man was pounding the head? out of the animal bones i love no, that, that, no, that, that that's what it was that was him yeah. discovering a weapon and moon watcher is that yeah. was that uh proto man's name or man ape or whatever you want to call yeah. it yeah I, right I, I, that was him discovering and that was again right after the right after the monolith appears that's when he discovers that you see him looking it's the first time you've seen the, these creatures do anything other than just survive that you saw them sort of ponder and say, hey, wait a minute, this well, could be used as a weapon. Yeah, it's the one moment of real, like, revelation, you know, yes. like, uh, like mm-hmm. you're, you're rooting for him and you're you, in the, the it swells. The only other scene like that is the evolution that happens at the very end of the film. You know, there's yeah. similar right. moments of, aha, you just made the leap. This that scene of him beating the bones is the moment that's the switch is finally flipping and he, what he is now is different than what he was, you know, 20 minutes ago. Right. right. I, I found myself cheering. On yeah. Like, yeah. Give it to it. Yeah. <laughs> even though it's even though it's a, a 
a carcass that when he hits it, it just goes into dust, whatever. But you're like, finally, something's happening. You know, woo! I love the follow-up scenes of just seeing the taper hit the ground and then the next animal. And then before long, he's now defending his his group against the the other apes. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and you know, I do like each segment, don't get me wrong, but I feel like the jump into the moon stage of this uh, – I, I liked, I did like the interaction. I liked the Pan America, like yes. God, who remembers Pan America and the whole situation there. But I like the whole. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, it's like you know, here's Pan America is going to fly you to the moon now, and, and Jupiter and wherever else you want to go. But I, I did like that section. But it's the 18 month later Jupiter jump that really got me when we really started breaking down into the David and Hal and that character that really you know, brought it up for me. And that's where I kind of liked that section. The moon section was okay. It just a little bit dialogue. Heavy. <laughs> I'm saying dialogue heavy in a movie. It only had like 20 minutes of dialogue, but I'm just like, okay, keep secrecy and, and, and eat your it's, ham sandwiches. Yeah. And <laughs> it's the closest thing. The movie comes to an info dump, which yeah. is still not, but you're right. Right. And, and it's kind of the lulling section in a lot of ways, too. That's one where it's funny because when this movie was over, my kid said something really odd to me, which was um, my son says, Dad, that was basically a special effects movie. And I'm like, I bet you no one has ever said that about yeah, right. 2001 because because what we think of as a special effects movie. But when he was explaining it to me, I was like, no, I, I get what you're saying, that the movie, you know, it exists because of special effects. It's not about special effects, but it is all, hey, look at this. Hey, look at this. And. We're going to look at this for a really long time. And this segment is a lot of you're just kind of lulling along. And I don't even honestly pay attention much to what they're saying. I mean, like you said, it's more the details of we're going to go here. This is what the, the monolith is doing now. But it's not like we are being re- and nothing is being truly revealed to us. We're just learning about like kind of Bill said, oh, now it's where we got to go in here. And this is what's happening. But nobody knows why. There's no illumination. It's just the setup. Pretty much. Yeah, they're but just not getting in a, ready. Yeah. They're getting you ready for what's going right. to happen. And, and I did like, I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I did like the fact that we now can look back at this and see what they didn't see. Like, seriously, like what I said at the beginning, when you see like him talking to his daughter, okay, and you're seeing a video conference call, this is Skype, you know, from 1968, basically. This is like Zoom. This is technology that was never it was not there and then you're seeing it there you know what i'm saying so he was so above the times of what he was showing us that if i was in that audience in 1968 i would be like wow what in the world is this you know how do we got a computer what, what and, bullshit and I, did i just see yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> right yeah exactly the mention of how exactly. like I, i'll spoil a hair right here for one second but when you're in the mind of how and he goes in uh when you're in the third and fourth act and he's dissembling and they're like i know one of the documentaries was talking about how that now you know everything that was in how which was this monstrous you know database of 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 equipment you could put into a thumbnail of a file chip now you know at the time you probably could yes yeah but at the time i've had that in your mind stanley kubrick clearly would not have known that 
but at the same time, I mean, the stuff. Now that he's he, small enough to accidentally drop in the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> a couple glasses of wine, baby. Well, right. to, it would be a little, a little, bit, a little bit easier to, dis, to disassemble if you wanted to disassemble yeah, yeah. Hal now than, than it was in that movie. But it's interesting because one of the things I thought was really cool at the end of, of that phone call with his daughter, that, mm. that Williamson with the Haywood Floyd and his daughter, Kubrick makes it a point to show the charge. Nowadays, a dollar seventy for a call doesn't seem like much at all. But I bet in 1968, people were like, "Oh my God, that call cost a dollar seventy! What?" I thought well, that was interesting because it, 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 it's, it that would be one of the things that might date it a little bit. Because in 1968, sure. people were probably like well, on the floor for gas or something back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, right. You got a dollar seventy might have filled your gas tank. Back, yeah. <laughs> back at that time. Um, whereas, you know, I do want to uh, mention. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead no, you, I you first. do want to mention that scene a little bit. The the scene where he does talk to his his daughter there. And I think that's where the emphasis is. I think what Kubrick is trying to show here is sort of a, a dehumanized humanity who we have all these really beautiful, shiny things, but they have driven in. And really, that's not necessarily, you know, it's a pessimistic view, but it's not necessarily wrong that how technology has driven a certain amount of wedge between human interaction, right? Like, yeah, the proto the proto people in the opening had it pretty rough, but they're all there huddled together and they're all together in their cave. And now he jumps forward and this guy, the only way he can talking to his daughter is through this phone. And it's not just that. The distance is seen in the way they interact, right? Like she barely seems like she knows him. Um, there's that weird detail too where she's like, oh, I got a bush baby. I'm like, is a bush baby, a, you know, which is like a little almost like like a lemur like kind of creature. It's like is that a normal gift in the future? <laughs> like, right, right. That I get a, that I get to have a bush baby. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like right. that scene is under. It, it's it's trying to make a point about what might happen with technology, right? And you know, we've recently seen it is it is kind of nice, right, to be able to if you if you can't have to leave if you don't leave your house, you can't leave your house. It is nice to still be able to have these connections. But I think Kubrick's looking at the other side of do we still interact the same way? Do we still need each other the same way? And do we right. treat each other the same way when our technology is to the point that it allows us to have distance? And I think that's what he's trying to establish in that that sequence before we get to yeah. the, the mm. Jupiter mission. And that was actually played by Kubrick's real uh, Vivian. Kubrick's actual daughter was playing the the, oh, that's the, right. yeah. the young daughter in that, in that scene. Um, and I don't know about you, but every time at the end of that, I'm thinking, you know, with the way that the, the girl is, she's, a, she's just a little girl. There's no way she's going to remember to tell the mother that, that he called. It's just not going to happen. You know, yes. like every time that's over, it's like, will you tell mommy I called? No, <laughs> that's not going to happen. She'll never remember to tell her, you know. I always thought that at, at the end of that, I like, yeah, she, she's not going to know that, that, uh, that he called. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, uh, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but we're talking about, you're right, that, that whole scene, it, it's sort of sanitized. That's just that's not it's not like it's it's a, a a loving exchange, you know, it's a, oh, I'm sorry, I can't be there. Maybe that's more Haywood Floyd's character in the movie as played by William Sylvester. It's very just sort of a generic exchange with his daughter. It's, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing uh, underlying or nasty about it, but just not a very not the type of conversation you would think a father and a daughter would have. But if you think about it, the one character in this film that we do get a little bit more information about 
is the one who suffers a very awful fate. And that is um, Gary Lockwood's, you know, uh, Poole, um, the, the, you know, uh, Bowman's, uh, I don't know, second in command or whatever it is in this movie. The scene where he's um, sitting on that tanning bed or whatever it is and his parents call. And we hear the parents, it's his birthday. The father saying, oh, I think I've worked out your pay. Um, you know, and you see the pride in the parents talking to their son and, and you know, they're not talking to him because of the delay. They're just sending this message. But there's a pride there and the mother's a teacher and my students ask about you all the time. And oh, and uh, yes, yeah, so I'll definitely pick up that wedding present. Just tell me how much you want me to spend. He's the character we get a little bit of backstory on. So when what happens to him happens, it hits you a little bit more. I, at least it does me. It hits me a little bit more because what happens to him ultimately, I start thinking about that call, mm-hmm. you know, and now that now these parents who are beaming with pride are going to get this news. Yeah. And that's the only time in the movie I think we get that little bit more information about a character. Yeah, that, that's the one point in the film that kind of felt a little bit human to me, where it was like, we got a backstory, something tragic has happened, and you actually care for one of the characters. Yeah, and I think that that's interesting, because of the main characters, that's the only one who suffers that, that who, who suffers that fate. And he's the one we know, we know more about than the other ones. I think, I just thought that was very interesting, and again... I can't see that not being deliberate on Kubrick's point, uh, part, just knowing the type of filmmaker he was and the type of attention to detail yeah. he gave, you know? And I think you're right. I think that, that and, you know, it, 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 we're spoilers here, and we can move into this. And if is, did anyone have any other thoughts about this segment? Because I think it's a great time to move into the Jupiter mission mm. segment, if yep. you guys are good yep. with it. I'm good. Um, because then we get introduced to, I think, what is probably arguably the most tense and most story-driven segment of the film, and in a lot of ways, probably from a science fiction perspective, the most uh, tangibly interesting. You know, the last sequence is you almost go into pure, not fantasy, but at that point you're you're into something full, uh, completely 100% imaginative. Here you're still sort of locked into the concept of this is this is the real world in the future, you know, and we're introduced to those two characters, to, to Dave Bowman and to Frank Poole. And then the third character, who I think you, if not by accident, you could argue is the most human character in the movie, which is the, the computer, which is how yeah, 9,000. Yes. Now, and Douglas Rain, you, you can't say enough about the job he did with the voice of how 9,000. Um, especially because, well, he returns in the next movie. But in this, I, I thought that, that was amazing. You're right. It's just such an interesting. Hal is could be the most interesting character in the entire film. Yeah. And he's one of the great. I mean, also not surprising. Uh, and it won't be too surprising to say, you know, he's one of the great villains in cinema, period, and certainly in science fiction. Mm-hmm. And he, he they Kubrick develops him because he's also a he's also a character that suffers a fate, a moment where you, and in fact, he's the only character in the film, I think, that demonstrates a moment where he fears for his life ending. But uh, it was at that point, do you feel that he's getting what he deserves? Is this his comeuppance? Or 
do you feel a twinge of sympathy for Hal? And it's, that's it's what I was feeling. It's I really want I really um, want you guys to eventually see 2010 because it changes your perception a little bit. At least it did for me. I don't know about you, Nathan, but it changes your perception yeah, yeah. a little bit. And I'll talk a little how. bit without spoiling when we get there. But yeah, and that's it, it does. And I was at and it's one of those deals where there's a bit of 2010 that's almost like the wish fulfillment of I just want to see these characters again, you know. Yes, and that's yes. fine. I, they do such a nice job with that though. You're so happy to see them come back to see both uh Hal and uh Cardella as, as Dave Bowman come back and yet I, I would say that definitely with Hal it's the the things that are done with Hal in that movie and then ultimately in in Clark's later books that continue this story is is to me one of the best things about 2010 but we can we can kind yeah. of deal with that and Hal also gets one of the film's only laughs and that's when Bowman is what got his helmet on walking through the ship. And he's like, <laughs> Dave, let's talk about this. Yeah, I can see you're upset. I wrote down the line that made me laugh the most. It says, Dave, I think you need to calm, take a stress pill and think things over. <laughs> yes. Yes. He's going through the stages of grief, yes. like right there, like. You know, this isn't happening. Okay, I guess you're shutting me down. <laughs> I know. Like, can anybody talk about the frog helmet uniform? Like, the frog helmet, you get what I'm talking, the red one that literally like looked like a frog. I'm saying, like, what, what was he thinking when he put these two eyeballs, basically, on top of a helmet? He looked like a frog. I'm just, I don't know. But then going out there bobbing in space is kind of an interesting <laughs> little, but, I, I was going to say, we did kind of gloss over the... I don't want to give too much away, but uh, a scene involving reading of lips. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we could definitely talk about those scenes there because I, and this is what I mean when I say that I think Hal becomes one of the most human characters. And we don't quite know exactly, at least in this film, why uh, Hal goes kind of berserk, you know, if you will. Right. We don't know quite why he goes honestly homicidal and does kill. And he doesn't just kill Frank. Um, though he does, he kills everybody else on that ship except for yeah. Dave Bowman. Yeah. You know, he shuts right. down all the life support systems, and it's such a chilling scene because it's done so nonchalantly. You know, it happens, yes. and then my kids turn to me and say, "Wait a minute, did he just?" And I was like, "Yep, he sure did." And <laughs> yes, uh, that's the thing. Yeah, because it's it's handled in a way where you're just seeing screens, you're just seeing um, computer screens and and yeah. vital vital signs and everything. These characters are not ones you know anything about, but in that moment, three lives have just been extinguished. Mm-hmm. And there is a drama there when you finally realize, like, oh, my God, this Hal is, you know, he's like Hal and Jack Torrance have a little more in common than I exactly. originally thought. Yeah, exactly. Hal is the Skynet of Terminator, though. Is this the I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there like is uh, that again Scott? yes i think if you watch just 2001 yes but i think 2010 takes no. it a little bit further well i think you know, that's one yeah. of the interesting things is yeah you get this feeling that how he has this moment that one of the things that shows is the vulnerability of these people right they put themselves so at the mercy of their technology yeah. which is what cameron is saying later when he makes a terminator right is you know, they've put themselves at the mercy of this machine. It has control of everything. It has control. It can stop their hearts by yes. turning their machine off. It can sever their cord and let them float into space. And they did this themselves. They gave it this ability. So even though it may have been benign and it want, and it, it was doing what it was doing, if something went wrong, 
this isn't like a dog, you know, going berserk or something or, or it's, this is, this has your life in its, its hand and all it has to do is close, close the fist if it wants to. And you, but I think you get this idea that there's paranoia, right? Like, like, how it gets paranoid. That's why he reads their lips because he thinks they're going to do something to him. The humanity in Hal is not necessarily warm, fluffy Spielberg humanity. It's the humanity of jealousy. Like he's the, yeah. he's the one character right. that's showing clear emotions. The things he does are for self-preservation, just like the proto apes at the beginning. And some of it seems to be out of, um, I don't know if spitefulness, but you know, a certain vindictiveness or a certain, I'm going to get you. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. And then he immediately starts trying to barter. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny. It's funny because, you know, you think a computer and the whole the whole uh, debate, do computers have emotions, do computers, you know, uh, you know, are, are they just their own programming with how it is more than that? There's paranoia there. And you see that in the scene where he's reading the lips because he's like, okay. They're trying to hide from me, but what's going on? And then he sort of takes matters into his own hands for the mission. And that's what he's sort of defending. It's like, this is for the good of the mission. I need to be involved. I need to be there. Again, 2010 explains that a little bit more. We don't know that. So it does sort of make Hal definitely the villain of 2001, no doubt about it. And again, the job that Douglas Rain did as the voice, because there's no emotion. Mm-hmm. There's no emotion in Hal's voice at any point. It's just straightforward talking. And yet you sense the paranoia. You sense the need to survive everything about him. You, you feel it. You feel that, that he, when he tries to connect to the astronauts and they don't really connect back. That's one thing I always sort of take, took away from this movie you know, the scene where they're playing chess and the scene where he's looking at Dave Bowman's sketches and he's talking to Frank about his birthday, happy birthday. He's trying to compliment There's, him. He's trying to be one exactly. of the guys. Exactly. He's trying to be one of the guys, but they're not connecting back to him. He's hardware and to them. Exactly. He's hardware. He's just part of the ship to them. And he sees himself as more than that because that's what he was programmed to be was more than that. And, and I think that that, that adds a lot to it where, you know, that, that, that he, that he just sees himself as such, just a lot more than the astronauts see him as. Cause they're thinking, Oh, well we can just, you know, uh, yeah, I, there's something wrong here. We we're going to have to cut him off. We're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to disconnect him if we can. And the scene where they, where he finally does do that, where David Bowman goes in and disconnects him is chilling. If you think about the what what he's going through, almost as chilling as the scene in 2010 when he is brought back. Yeah, Both they, of those scenes are are very are very you know almost to the to the point of like wow you know they they do send a chill up your spine. I was gonna say it brought me into the horror element that scene. I agree. I agree with you 100. It, 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 it's, it's almost like a victim in a horror movie beating bleeding and and pleading for their life. Come on, come on, come on. And that was very reminiscent of that scene right there. And it ends with him like singing. And you know, a big thing like we've been talking about is like when this movie is made, we've seen plenty of this stuff later, right? In um, like Blade Runner, Roy Batty's last moments are not unlike what's happening here, you know? Right. Exactly. Uh, Exactly. His speech about the tears in the rain 
Uh, and you don't quite have that here, but you do have, you know, that scene where he's singing and it's just getting slower and slower. And, you know, yeah. and then later we have Johnny Five and Short Circuit, right? Um, but, uh, but, you know, <laughs> the thing is, we my point is we see all those characters and this concept of the artificial life that has a beat of the human in it is not is not alien or strange to us. But this is 1968. People don't even really know what a computer can do. Exactly right, and here it is. It's basically Frankenstein's right. monster, kind of, uh, is the, it, it is the is. correlation. And so it's the first time we really had AI. Alex Garland, who did, uh, you know, Annihilation and Sunshine, and it's done a lot of great stuff. He says about 2001. He said it just shows you the scale of the ideas you can get into if you want to. It has two massive things in it. It's got the alien first encounter and probably the best, most involved and intelligent depiction of AI that's ever been in a film or any kind of narrative. And I think that's probably true. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, the, the one agree. the one scene we haven't talked about that I really liked was way at the beginning when it was the, the news interview explaining what was going on in the mission. Oh, and, yeah, that's really cool, actually. And, yeah. and I, I yep. really like yeah. that because it was almost kind of like a third person almost outside of the scene kind of giving the audience the insight of what the heck is going on and who is how and what's their purpose. Yeah. Mhm. Absolutely. And you get this feeling where you're sitting there thinking out on like the, you know, the Philip K. Dick do, do androids dream of electric sheep. You're sort of wondering, OK, well, what does happen to Hal once he gets shut off? You know, that's and like you're saying, like the come up in Salamit Bill of, oh, well, does he deserve this? He's a he's a murderer. Technically, does he even know what's happening to him? And then one of the most brilliant things to think in 2010 is. He gets brought back, but he doesn't just get brought back. He gets turned back when he's turned online. This is a very minor spoiler. He's turned online by his creator, the person who made him initially. So it's kind of weird. It's almost like how dies in a sense and then the next thing he does he's waking up and he's talking to the person who made him almost as if you know he's now meeting god in a sense and that scene is done so well helped by the fact that bob balaban plays the guy who 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 made him and and bob Bob balaban it's funny because the type of character well again we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here but the type of character he plays in that bob balaban i think is for me the most interesting character in 2010 yeah, and so you get you get more of that. And I think that's what people recognize is how is the character. I think, you know, uh, Bradbury says, I don't really care if Dave Bowman lived or died, but Hal does have the most poignant scene, I think, in the film. Um, yeah. I think a good, because we haven't really talked about it. It's obviously a major element of the film and one of the few movies that has ever done this, the concept of silence and space, you know, which I don't have a problem with the rumbling spaceships and Star Wars and and, and and Alien because I'm looking at a film. I don't need to have the exact experience. But I do right. think that's part of what Kubrick's doing is trying to give you the experience. But how do you think – I know in, in most of the sequences, even though there's no sound in space, like the Blue Danube sequence, we have music. We have sensory stuff going. How did you think that worked here where we really don't hear anything mm-hmm. in what are the most like terrifying moments of the movie? Again, I think that, you know, earlier that Kubrick was building the wonder of space when you got the Blue Danube and, and uh, not the Blue Danube, but the, you know, the, the yeah, um, I'm sorry, slant. Yes. Um, the, the um, what was it? The uh, the Swan Lake, the music from Swan Lake and also Spock. You got all of that music. That's the wonder of space. Here we're getting the, the sort of horror of space, for want of a better term, yeah. you know, where where we're where we're, we're dealing with. 
okay, this is man against machine. And they are, I mean, if you think about it, David, Dave Bowman could be in this film, he, he's almost like the characters in, in alien where there's so he's so there's nobody could possibly come to save him. It is just Bowman against Hal in those scenes. And that's it. And the rest of the world isn't going to even know what happened for how many hours? How, how long is the delay, you know, from from Jupiter back to Earth? He is so isolated that it is just him. He is completely by himself on this ship trying to battle this computer. And, 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 and you know, what happens, it's funny because I think, I think Cure, Cure Delay plays it so well in this scene where he's like, open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Yes. Hal, do you read me? Hal, yeah. do you read me? Uh, and then Hal finally says, yes, Dave, uh, this conversation could so serve no purpose. And he sort of, you know, <laughs> gives that whole thing. And you just see Kiel Delay just sort of his eye, his mind going, thinking, you know, he's like, he wants to say something more, but he's like, what's the point? This, you know, right. I, I'm, I'm arguing with somebody. This is a computer. Uh, and, and he pretty much knows he's figured it out. Kiel Delay is trying to make it out. Like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, Hal, but he does. Right. They're playing chess again, but now it's life and death. Yeah. So now he's got to figure out a way to not only get on the ship, but shut down Hal, you know, before in a way that Hal and, and what happens is he, he you know, he, it happens. And as he's walking through the ship, Hal's now completely defenseless. Hal's now the, the, going to be the one who who's pleading for his life and and um, and really is not going to win. You know, now he's got to realize, hey. I can't win this situation. Just like Dave Bowman in that scene realizes I can't win when he's trying to get him to open the pie bay doors. And Hal's like this, this conversation can serve no purpose, Dave, uh, you know, goodbye. And, you know, and that's pretty much it. I, I think that's just an interesting. And again, you brought up chess and it's, it's interesting how, how, how um, Kubrick had that chess scene between Hal and Dave Bowman where Dave Bowman just throws in the talent, but yet he's got to find a way or else he's going to die. Yeah. You know, and later on in the film. And I, I I, thought that that was a very sort of interesting juxtaposition between those two moments. And Greg, gonna, did, um, oh, go ahead, Bill. I was just going to say, the other thing that I found effective about that film is the shot that it was, uh, the fact that it was shot in a red haze. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it, it, the color and the contrast is brilliant. It's very uh, Suspiria-esque in that kind of sense. But you almost got to wonder, does does the fact that it's shot in red represent something? Like, does it represent the blood that would happen if Hal got killed? I guarantee you. I guarantee you it does. Thinking thinking of just, just, again, the way that Kubrick, he was, everything was done with a purpose. I think it does. I think that's a great point. You know, I think that's an awesome point because everything else is white and sanitized. But that sequence is entirely in red. You're absolutely it, right. I mean, there's the blood other, on his hands at that point, too, you know, in a sense. He's yeah, exactly. He, he's literally in the, in the act of killing. But the other thing I thought of, does red represent rage? The rage that Bowman feels at that moment. I don't give a crap what you say. I'm going to kill you. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's what it Or does red represent death? You know, like it all, I think, subliminally or not so subliminally, the red represents something or is it the uh, does red literally represent the oncoming Russians? Because this is during the space race time, right? Too? Sure. So don't don't put it above somebody to throw it <laughs> some some jingoism in that scene. You know, who knows? Yeah. And and Greg, what uh, any thoughts you had uh, about that sequence or things that you really liked seeing it for the first time 
that whole Jupiter mission involving Hal and, and all that stuff. No, I really enjoyed that because that was, like it's been mentioned, that was more of the horror element of the movie for me. So I did get a little more into that and seeing how, yeah, I, I could not not draw comparison to like Terminator and seeing the whole Skynet and where it was going. And I'm like, you know, this computer and what's going on. And, and I was telling Pearl while I was watching this and we were t- discussing a little bit about it, but the moment when, when the individual is, is lost. Okay. He's floating in space, so to speak. And I'm watching that whole sequence like, oh my God, like this, this dude's dead. Like he's not going to survive. And I was trying to explain, we were talking about it. Like what would be going through your head the moment that you just realized what happened, you know, and now you're floating and just that sheer, you know, old crap moment. Um, so yeah, the, the terror was there. That's what I liked most about that. I mean, Close Encounters Third Kind is my favorite sci-fi movie, but that does have a little more action. It does have more alien, you know, kind of feel, E.T., those kind of movies. So this one is a totally different feel for me in that it is more um, visual. It is more, you know, silent. But those scenes, they were good, man. I, I mean, when, when Hal's being shut down and, like you say, and he's singing – and then he's just slowly going, yeah, you know, and you're like, yeah. oh man, and and it's just that moment of how man will overcome or will he overcome, you know, the circumstances. Will he always outdo the computer? I don't know. Um, I, I enjoyed it, man. It, that was when it kind of, cause like I said, the middle part, you know, when he's on the moon, that section was kind of dragging for me, but then it picked up here, cause now I'm like, okay. You know, we're seeing a little bit more of uh, pre-Star Wars. We're seeing a little bit more. We got spaceships now. We got, you know, the space station rolling. We got all these things going on. And now we've got death. And now we've got all these things. I like this. So, yeah, for my first viewing, man, it, it really, I, I was intrigued there. That's kind of where I parked. I was like, all right, this is what's making this movie really good for me right now. That is awesome. And, yeah, I I think that's one of the things that's interesting is, and I love Close Encounters of the Third Kind too. And it's like, and those movies, they have a very clear sort of emotional bent to them. And I think one of the things with 2001 is it's not telling you how to feel. It's presenting you this amazing thing, but it's how do you feel? But I would say for, for as, as amazing as those early sequences are as, as trippy and out there and as transporting as that final sequence is, I don't think that 2001 would be the classic that it is, the masterpiece that I, I think it is, and the as, as uh, influential as it is, if it didn't have this sequence and oh, it, it didn't have HAL 9000. I 100% agree with that, definitely. Absolutely. So, Bill and Greg, what did you guys, where did you guys, I'm curious, where did you guys think the story was going once that stopped? And now he's headed out to Jupiter to the to the other monolith which is sort of just floating out there right and then so he's he's now we're in we're poised on the brink right and we're heading in and we've seen everything so far where did and then of course knowing kind of what the movie is though where did you, what did you think was going to happen next where did you expect the movie was headed to to be blunt I had no bloody idea <laughs> I, I'm all green feel like I'm scratching <laughs> at the moment like where else are we going like what can where are we going from this? I mean, you know, I I was scratching my head, dude. I had no clue where we were going. 
Still don't that, really know where we ended up, but yeah. I was, yeah. was going to say, when the ship starts going and you get that amazing visuals for about two to three minutes there, yeah. I thought of that old song by the Amboy Duke's Journey to the Center of Your Mind. <laughs> because it's it's it would fit perfectly in that because you're seeing all these audios and visuals and you're seeing these you know it was almost like a lava lamp blob becoming a uh, your uh, your visual in front of you and then it becomes a the the space and then it becomes a planet and you're like wow you know like it's a it's an acid trip to the tenth level that's what that is yeah it's like watching like I'd said earlier like Tron this is like Tron on crack man it's like. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're watching a video arcade yeah. game right now. We're we're on the the cusp of leaving Atari and moving into Super Nintendo or Nintendo all of a sudden. Or ColecoVision. ColecoVision, but well, you know, a lot of it looks like what happens when yes. the Nintendo would mess up. You know, you get your yeah, yeah. disc and so messed up. Yeah, if you got if you got angry and pulled the cartridge out while the system was still <laughs> yeah. on, right? you sit there blowing in the cartridge, hoping the next yes. time Mario shows yeah. up, right. flying through the Stargate. How much of my DNA spit was inside those? those Ew, right, yeah. Know, talk about <laughs> coronavirus. You know what it felt oh, like? It felt, it felt like in high school when you're trying to watch a dirty movie that was all scrambled. Yeah. On our cable box, on our cable box, if you went from channel one to ninety nine real fast. You could get the could Playboy watch. channel in for like about 15 seconds clear. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I always got it in during the damn interviews. <laughs> yeah, right. All the rest of the time, he watched it like it was this Stargate sequence. Right, yes, yeah. exactly. Oh, my gosh, yeah. full of boobs. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, Pearl described this movie, man, and she watched it twice with me as well. And I don't remember, did you see this movie before? You had seen it before, so this wasn't her first viewing. But she said this so beautifully, man. She said, I see the movie as a classical Beethoven music. She said, you sit back and listen to every instrument being played in and take it symphony. As for the movie, you sit back and take the majestic colors, the imagination within space, and then the surroundings. That's the best way she describes this movie. And that is so true. It is like Beethoven. It is a classical masterpiece. Everything ties in. But if you leave, like, you do have to have that moon section, but then without, you know, the mission to Jupiter, everything kind of played together. If you was missing right. that. That's instrument. a beautiful way right. to put it with missing yeah. that yeah. one piece. Yeah. You don't have a symphony. You have something clunky a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Right. Just he exactly. nailed that part, man. Like, he he nailed it. it, it and I think, and, and I might be stepping out of my bounds here, Nathan, but I think they said, like, there was, like, 220 some minutes more or something that could have been filmed. So some weird description that like, there's like a tenth millionth more movie that could have been put out. Like it was oh, true. Yeah. And he originally even had, I think the cut that a lot of people walked out of. And I think the one that, um, <laughs> that rock Hudson was at was like 160 minutes. So it was even 20 minutes longer wow. than what we have. Oh, and you're right. God. Like with Kubrick, you caught you, you could probably put out a movie that was as long as the Jupiter mission itself, you know, theater. You'd have been like, Oh, hell no. if, if anybody out there has the bootleg five hour version, please let us know. I would watch it. I mean, I would sit there and I, I would yeah. definitely watch it. No doubt about it. But next yeah, movie I mean, I'm going to make Bill watch is Tarkovsky Solaris. <laughs> oh, let me tell you something. You know what? I love Solaris, but Bill, if I you think too. 2000, the, the, Solaris makes 2001 a Space Odyssey look like Armageddon. Oh. <laughs> wow. 
Yeah, well, that's a, throw a curveball at you now. Well, and we're talking this, Dave, you'll like this. Like mm-hmm. Dr. Strangelove and Eraserhead. Mm-hmm. Never seen them. I've oh, seen oh, wow. Never I, I tell you what, we're Dr. Strangelove. got to keep having you back, Greg. And do I know, right? I'll tell you, yeah, definitely. Dr. Strangelove is, is awesome. I love Dr. Strangelove. And I think one of my favorite parts of that is George C. Scott's performance in that film. And what's interesting, it it really is. He's hilarious. But what's, what's, what's interesting I thought was that George C. Scott did not want to go over the top like that. He wanted to do a more controlled performance, but Kubrick was like, no, I want you to be sort of over the top. And he's like, well, just do that. Like in the rehearsals and Kubrick filmed the rehearsals and put them in the movie and really pissed George C. Scott off <laughs> because because he wanted that crazy manic character and Dr. Strangelove that he got from George C. Scott. But I love it. I think George C. Scott was brilliant in that movie. And I, I would say s- Kubrick had never made a movie like that. But you could say that of every one of Kubrick's movies, like yes. almost none of them are similar. But they're not. They're not. He's, Strangelove he's, almost has like a Mel Brooks feel at times to it. You know, it's yeah, so it strange. does. It's so crazy. And with with Peter Sellers. Um, plays slim three Pickens. roles in that movie. <laughs> oh, Slim Pickens is uh, Slim Pickens is hilarious. You're in that selling film. me. I love Slim Pickens. Oh, dude. Slim Pickens. We're gonna awesome. do this. We'll have to do I, this. I was gonna we say I don't do Doctor Strange Love. Yeah, I don't want to do Doctor Strange Love. I don't want to take this too far off. But I watched Solaris and then I watched Jadarowski's Holy Mountain. <laughs> back to uh, back. Oh, I'll no. tell you what. Yeah, yeah that's I mean, next. That's the next VOD roulette, Bill. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Look what you did, Bill. <laughs> and I love, I, I love Tarkovsky's Solaris. I do love Tarkovsky's Solaris, it, but, it great if, movie, you but think two, yeah. if you think 2001 is slow, watch Solaris. <laughs> it is. I mean, it, it is. It is really. Let's put it slower. this way. Tarkovsky thought 2001 was too commercial. So he made that as right. a response. So he, so he made Solaris. Right. If I can I mean, sit my, through, yeah. if I can sit through Hagazusa, I can sit through Solaris. <laughs> oh, no. you're on. I sat, I sat through Hagazusa too. <laughs> but um, where were we going? Oh yeah, Beyond the Infinite. <laughs> beyond yeah. the Infinite, yes. That that sequence now, when oh, it gets to that, right. when it gets to the very end, when you start to get those iconic images of yeah. um, the floating fetus and um, so and, and and Bowman uh, sitting there, but again, it all goes back to that monolith you know where where the monolith is is almost like yes it's it's space but it's also time yeah and it's it's evolution and it's it's how it affects both of them together and that's what they're driving at at the end of that movie and i again i did not know that the first few times i saw this movie i'm like wow you know it's it's really cool until the very end when I just like gets completely off the rails and I don't know what the hell's going on yeah. at the end of the movie. Um, uh, but again, we'll get into the story of, you know, when we get into the next film about how I sort of, with the help of somebody else, figured out what was going on in 2001. And <laughs> you watch it now and it really does. It's just really cool. It, it's just really interesting that what Kubrick was doing and setting all of that up with the way that Bowman is just, and that's Bowman the whole entire time, a very old man near death, a fetus, you know, b- before birth, just everything and how it's playing with both space and time at the, uh, you know, simultaneously. Yeah. Or why the frequency? What, what was the difference between in the beginning with, with the apes and then you go into where they're on the moon and, and how the, the humans, the frequency was 
You know, like what? What? Well, what? What it is? Well, I mean, again, and this is getting into spoilers again, uh, and and this is not something I knew from the first viewing, or probably not something I even knew from the fifth viewing. It wasn't until that I was, you know, I I had I had sort of talked about things, you know, with with this neighbor of mine, um, where, you know, because come to think of it, I must have seen two thousand and one before nineteen eighty four. Hmm. I must have, I thought it was 85. It must have been before that. I thought it was that video store. I must have seen this movie in the early 80s because I had I had seen 2001 before I saw 2010 in 1984 in the theater. And again, I didn't know what the hell was going on. When the hell did I see it, though? When did I see this <laughs> Time movie? Time and space are it could, it, it, could, it couldn't have been on video. It must have been on TV. I must have seen 2001 on TV. Because when I saw 2010, I was fully familiar with the characters in the film. You know, it was it was not new to me. I thought it was 85 when I found that video store, but I think I just rewatched it at that point. Turns I must out have there seen never it before was a video that. store. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, no, there definitely was, <laughs> it was a just video a black store. monolith in a in an yeah. alley somewhere in Dave. Right. Dave, yeah, exactly. Dave Bowman. It looks like a hotel. It's <laughs> Dave Becker. It looks like a video store. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> that damn. Model. Um, <laughs> but the whole idea is that the monolith is just it's it's uh, again tracking evolution. It it's it kicks it kicks prehistoric man off into hunting and and learning how to defend himself and not having to fear you know live in fear all the time to actually you know survive all the way up to when okay man got to the moon. So this was this was an alien that planted this monolith. This was for an alien culture. When they found it on the moon, that noise was a signal being sent off into space. Yes, they've reached the next level. They have reached the next level of evolution. They have visited the nearest satellite to their planet. Show them what they've won, Johnny. Exactly. And what happens is a monolith appears near Jupiter. So they send a spaceship out. That's David Bowman and and Poole and HAL 9000 are sent out to to explore to find out why this monolith has appeared near jupiter why is it there well now it's starting another uh series of evolution and they get into that a little more in 2010 that's why 2010 sort of matches up with this film as to why the monolith is hanging around jupiter and let me um let me ask you guys uh Greg, you build a question. Before I do that, Greg, you, to, and another part of the answer, I think, with the with the frequency, you get the idea, and it's kind of we've seen this in other sci-fi movies. Like if you go back to Davy or Stood Still, right? Is that you get the idea that aliens are always kind of at a remove, even in close encounters, right? They're to remove, sort of watching to see what we're doing as a as right. a fledgling species. And here, the kind of concept is that not only are these aliens or whoever this this unseen initiator is not only they're watching but they're causing it right that they are watching and then at a certain point they're intervening right because otherwise you get the idea that proto man that stream strain of proto man would have died out and the human race wouldn't have done anything but for the monolith right that's the god and the machine that comes down and kind of sets them off on their next destiny and then when they're ready here's a new monolith and it's going to send a signal. And if they follow it, if they get that far out, they get to go to the next step. What did you guys think about that scene? Once he's through the Stargate and all the weird stuff, mm-hmm. and he's in the hotel, and like Dave is saying, time and space. But when you, when that's all done, what do you think is happening there? Like, 
Um, because I think there are varying ways you can view it. Certainly, you are talking about that evolution thing, but uh there there's another movie actually the movie that david mentioned earlier ai i think has a very similar ending to this and i think it's kind of up to debate on what is actually happening well what did you view that hotel room as? did you view it as a concrete thing did you think uh what did where did you think he actually was at that point i i thought it was somewhere in his mind uh i didn't really know to be honest but i knew it had something to do with because it showed the fetus and then it showed him as an old man so there was some kind of connection between the life cycle something has come all the way around and it got really trippy so at that point i really didn't question it i just went with it Mm -hmm. yeah because i was thinking more of a of uh kind of similar what you're saying bill it was almost like for me when i was watching i was thinking maybe this is some kind of uh twilight loop or maybe you know he's sucked himself in this rabbit hole so to speak or i mean i didn't know like i'm I'm scratching my head like i've went from space all of a sudden i'm in some house that you know and and this monolith and then they're old and i'm like wrinkle i'm like what in the world has just happened like what has happened here i think it i i think it's almost like it's it's in his head, but still the monolith is controlling it. The monolith wow. is controlling those images of what he's seeing at that point. And he's seeing the full life cycle and experiencing it all out of, you know, out of chronological order. Mm-hmm. And you get the idea. My take on it is that, I mean, he could be inside an alien ship or like the monolith or in his head. But yeah. you get the feeling that wherever he is, what's actually happening is that at this point in the human evolution with the apes, it was maybe a little bit easier because they didn't even have an awareness of right. themselves. And then they were given awareness and he's got awareness. So it's almost like the monolith can't just flip his flip the switch and turn him into the star baby, that that space infant that is now uh, you get the impression that that's a totally different life form. Right. That This is a new evolution of man starting from its infancy it's almost like dave bowman just can't go from being who he is to being this star entity he actually has to his mind can't handle it unless he lives his natural life and then moves to the next one it i get the impression that whether he's actually aging or they're putting it through his paces in his mind just like you guys said like he's got to go through he's got to die before he can be reborn like he his mind cannot handle the evolution without having his natural end I think that's absolutely right, because when you think about what the last image is in the film, that's the rebirth. I think you're absolutely right. Yep, I agree. It was was one of those ones where, at that point, I wasn't going to question anything. I just wanted to see where it went. That's to be blunt. Yeah. Well, I think that's almost like the best place to have it. That's the cool thing about 2001. It's like, particularly the first time you see it, I don't think you can really process it. You just sort of go for the ride. That's what's cool about it. It is, it is a ride. It is an emotional experience. It doesn't really need to be an intellectual one. Did you? After a while, you're like Greg. You're right. Everyone's sitting there scratching their head, being like, "What is this?" Yeah. I mean, you right. just don't know anymore. Like by this moment, you've already spent two hours into this movie and. And you just don't know where Kubrick's taking you right now. And you're just like, okay, I'm just taking the ride. I'm, I'm, I'm on it. Right. This would, awesome. this would be a hell of a ride at Disneyland. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to be on those little circular pod things. With although, arms. yeah, although you'd yeah. probably have to, you'd, you'd be putting goggles on. And it would be, most of it yeah. would be virtual. 
You know, <laughs> I, I don't know that they could recreate it as a full ride. Love it. It would be amazing. Yeah, like a Space yeah. Mountain's got a little bit of that going on, and then it just all becomes about nearly breaking your neck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, like I did promise that this podcast can't be longer than the actual film. So we are <laughs> ended the, Well, you know what? Let's put the, the, our discussion Our discussion of the film came in a little under the... the uh, yeah, yeah, there the you go. So, so we can still they, talk. Exactly. Yeah, this is resembling an LOTC episode. Yeah, well, that well, the LOTC is here, so that's perfect. I'm loving this. This is great. This is uh, thank God they didn't make a third one. We'd we'd be here till one in the morning. Probably. Right. Well, they, they haven't made a third one yet. But um, right. any final thoughts from anybody about 2001: A Space Odyssey? And and again, and I love that. I do love that final shot of the star baby, the star infant. And when Clark later writes his book, it's really hard to tell whether the star baby is. You know, he turns and he looks at us, and we get the impression Star Baby's close to the screen, and Earth is far away. But there's almost a feeling of the Star Baby is kind of—it's only kind of nominally there in a sense. Like it's—it's it's so uh, if, ephemeral that it's almost—it can be giant. Like it starts flying into the atmosphere of the actual book, and it's like waving rockets and stuff out of its way. Is like the Earth defenses attack it. So it's sort of—it really could be giant or it could be small. You know, it's really—it doesn't seem to have a specific physical presence all the time which is kind of a weird thought so it's hard to tell whether it's a giant because my daughter says is it a giant star baby and i'm like i never thought I, so but clark was not I really mean, sure yeah like what is this like is how being right. created i mean what what <laughs> it's, it, it's greg it's very interesting that you say that because <laughs> i may uh, right clark was clark was not clark was thinking along your your wavelength he writes several books uh-huh. and eventually we do. I will say we do. Spoilers, everybody. Eventually, we do see the evolution of Hal, who who evolves beyond what he is in this in this movie and what he's in the, in the next movie too. But he, Clark was wow. thinking along the same lines that you were thinking, Greg. Okay. All right. So I'm not complete idiot. Nice. All right. Cool. <laughs> That's not, what the other, not at all, man. <laughs> Yay! No, not at all. <laughs> I'm old rich. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the the one thing that I discovered through this is I eventually did go back through the cast and uh, initially jumping out, there was no big name per se that was in this. The star was Hal and the effects and the story. But I was curious to I found Glenn Beck and Glenn Beck played one of the astronauts and he's from Cranbrook, British Columbia. But he was also in Doctor Strange Love, and then he's still acting, I believe. And he was also in National Treasure years later. So I was, I was three just, masterpieces. Three. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, so, I like National Treasure, go. to be honest. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it just shows that, like, he's always Kubrick's always just gotten an ensemble cast, and he just gets men and women who he thinks fit that role regardless of if they're a name or not, because to him, the film is what draws you in, not necessarily the actor. In in this one, it's the spectacle. It's the spectacle and the wonder that draws you in more than the actor. Of of course, Keir DeLay was in um, Black Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, and and looking younger in some ways. Yeah, (laughs) right. Even though though it it was years later, he does look younger. Absolutely. But but I mean, if you talk to 100 people on the street and say, do you know who William Sylvester, Leonard Rossiter, Robert Beattie, 
Nobody would know who the heck these people right. are, but right. they sure will know 2001. Yeah. 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 I, I, Absolutely. I think for me, this is my favorite Kubrick movie. And that, and that's kind of hard to say because I do love, um, I love so many of his movies. I will say, you know, at the end of the day, I think Kubrick really was well fitted for these more fantastical movies. You know, Dr. Strangelove yeah. and The Shining and Clockwork Orange and 2001 A Space Odyssey. I mean, he's made some other amazing movies, but these are my favorites. I mean, and yeah, I have a bent towards the fantastical, but I just think what he brought to that yeah. that genre was so amazing. And see, that's something yep. I'm curious about because I'm doing, I'm in the middle of doing my whole, you know, David Cronenberg chronological watch where I'm watching each one of his directorial movies, and I'm debating on my next one. And Kubrick may be that one. I may go to, although, you know, there's so. I, I would, I would do it. I would do it because Kubrick, you know, he, with the killing, it's it's like a a heist movie. Uh-huh. It's you know, Spartacus, like a sword Spartacus, sandal adventure yes, movie. Exactly. With Kirk which isn't, which no movie is really, the same. No, and Spartacus wasn't so much a Kubrick movie as it was a Kirk Douglas movie. Kubrick could direct yeah. it, but it's really a Kirk Douglas movie, and that and that's an interesting one. It's really like it's almost as if Kubrick is like a Howard Hawks in that he's working in all different genres. Barry Lyndon yet, and yeah. yeah, but yet it is still each one of them is so much a Kubrick movie. You know, every one of them, it's, it's like Kubrick's horror, Kubrick's take on a horror movie in The Shining. It's, it's Kubrick's War, take full metal jacket, on, yeah. on war film and Full Metal Jacket. Kubrick's take on sci-fi in 2001 okay. Space Odyssey. You know, and, and, and it, it's just very All different. All the way through Eyes Wide Shut, there no, none, no one of them feels like it's uh, crossing the other. Yeah, I think, I mean, exactly. the nice thing about that is you don't, I don't think with Kubrick, at least... You get that same sense of I don't know burnout, but I know like I haven't done like Cronenberg back to back, but I did Lynch back to back, and that almost that almost annihilated me. <laughs> and it's like sometimes you can have too much of a director at one time. And yet yeah. I think the cool thing about Kubrick, he really is kind of singular. You're going to get all different kinds of movies from. Well, him. what I what right. I think is interesting is to see where he started from, like with Lolita, to get to Full Metal Jacket. And wow. Lolita's, yeah, Lolita's like an earlier film, yeah. And, and it's a good movie, too, in its own way. It is. It is, but, but a very different movie yeah. than, say, Full Metal Jacket or The Shining. It's, Every single one of his movies is just very different from the last, and yet you can identify them as Kubrick films. There's just very, something about them. Very accessible, too, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, the, the, I would say this is probably... I don't want to say the least accessible, but I think this is probably the the more from the the standard thinking is this is probably one of the more difficult ones. Would you would you say, um, uh, Dave, at least from the perspective of a, a viewer trying to like get into the story? I feel like 2001 yes. might be the most obtuse. I would I would agree. I think I think you you have an easier time even in something like a Clockwork Orange, sort of picking up what's going on. Uh, mm-hmm. Even why eyes wide shut, you sort of you sort of can pick up what's going on a little I quicker. To revisit that one, it's been a yeah, long time. It's been a I, long time for eyes wide shut for me too. I'll be honest with you. I think I've seen every Kubrick film several times since the last time I've seen eyes wide shut. I've never disliked one of them though. To be honest, no, like, I've liked all of them. I haven't either. Even the killing and the killing is is a very early sort of Kubrick film. And Passive Glory. Oh yeah, for, oh, I, Passive Glory. Pa- Passive Glory is one of the great anti-war films. I think. 
You know, it really is when, when, with what happens in that movie and the way Kubrick shoots it. There's a scene where that general is walking through the trenches and he's just following along with him. You know, the, the way that that scene is shot and then that ending with the one with the one who became Mrs. Kubrick, you know, the 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 uh, the, the woman standing on stage singing to all of the soldiers and everything. Just a, an amazing movie, Pass of Glory. It really, really is. I don't think there's a single Kubrick movie that I wouldn't recommend that people check out. But I, but even with his war films, you look at Passive Glory and you look at Full Metal Jacket, two very different films still yeah. about war, but mm-hmm. still two very different approaches to the material. I yeah, think to both of them. I'd say, Greg, if you're going to do another one after this, I, I would say it'd come down to either Stanley Kubrick or Yui Bowl, and you could pick from there. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd go for that one. Yeah. You, you could do yeah. a bunch of bowl movements, or you can. Uh, right. You yes. can go I was yeah. going to say, we've gone down the road of absurdity. We've oh gone God. into the Stargate and beyond, yeah. So <laughs> yes. any, any other thoughts? And we can talk very briefly. We've kind of peppered some stuff in about 2010. I w- we'll keep it spoiler-free. I do want to mention a few things about it. But did you um, – did anyone else have anything about 2001? And it's I, it's it's cool to have two people who have never seen it before and yeah. come away with it like you guys have with a lot of stuff. Because I, I think it's a movie that's hard not to appreciate it even if it's not like everybody's you know bag, so to speak. Yeah, I, I was going to say, one of the things that did intimidate me before I watched it was the sheer length of it. I mean, it's two and a half hours. And it's not that I haven't seen movies that long, but if it's not necessarily your style of movie to sit through a two and a half hour film that's not necessarily your first choice, does take a little bit of desire to have to see the film. Yeah. So sure. that, that's part of it. And Here's the only time you'll ever find a link between Naked Gun and 2001. <laughs> Both films, similarly, you have to watch a couple times to get the secondary <laughs> details. <laughs> and you do. And yep. it's, it's one of those ones that I know the next time I watch it, I'll go, okay, now that makes sense. Oh, I get where this character is uh, coming from. Oh, I get why this placement of whatever is there because I'd love to go to a drive-in and see Naked Gun in 2001. Back <laughs> that would back. be awesome. That would be awesome. It's like when we did our New York episode on HMP yeah. and I was talking about some of the double features that they used to do in New York where they would show air, airplane and alien as a double feature. You know, right. that that would be really cool to see Naked but, Gun. But, here's, but I mean, Benji and and bird with the crystal plumage. Right. <laughs> but anybody who's seen 2001 and then they've also seen Naked Gun, you know, there are things that you miss. And sure. so it, well, it is. It is. Leslie absolutely... Nielsen was in 3001 A Space Travesty, I believe the name of the movie was. <laughs> so there is that. It got so sad at the end for Leslie Nielsen. I felt so bad for him with some of those movies he was appearing in. But you know, the thing about Leslie, well, you have the interesting connection with Leslie Nielsen. The one thing about Leslie Nielsen is you get the impression he was. He he brought his game every single time. Oh, yeah, he, he was did. Inspired. He was having a he, ball. You he, tell. Absolutely yeah. he absolutely did. He absolutely did. And the link is Forbidden Planet. Yeah, the link is Forbidden Planet, Forbidden where he's the Planet, serious. Yep. With an excellent. It was funny because that came up because we were talking about how. And Izzy hears, hears him say, you know, open the pod bay doors. He's like, that's in your podcast at the start. And I was like, it is. And then we were talking about Robbie the Robot. And, and how, you know, if you think about it, Robbie the Robot's the only other, like, I was like, what robotic character that had a had a humanesque presence was in film before how you're probably going back to Robbie the Robot. 
Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You're going back to Robbie the Robot in, uh, and in Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet is, is very... I've, I've, I haven't seen it in a long time. I've seen it a couple of times, but I haven't seen it in a very long time. But I do love that that ending. I love the ending of it with with um, oh god, is is it Walter Pigeon? Is Walter that Pigeon? It is? Yeah, he's, he's Walter the, Pigeon, the doctor. Yeah, he's is a that... doctor, and and the fact that he that that what he discovers, you know, that yeah. the, the, what he discovers at the end of that film, I think is amazing. I, I love that's 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 a great thing. And, and you could argue for 1964 or whatever it is, that's a pretty funky out there film as well. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, no it's a, it's the it. sci-fi version of Shakespeare's The Tempest, which is is when you see that and realize it, it's like, oh, wow, this is pretty, pretty cool. Mm-hmm. This is pretty neat. Oh, by but, the way, Bill, Bill, if you thought 2001 was long, Solaris is about almost 20 minutes longer than 2001 <laughs> A Space Odyssey. And there are moments where you watch a uh, rain accumulate into a puddle for about seven minutes. Yes. And you and you watch <laughs> and you watch a drive. Uh, you watch a drive down the street for maybe about 20 minutes in Solaris. So, so it's interesting because 2001, again, 1968, and then you think of all the movies that come after it. And something I think, Bill, and, and you said too, Greg, in the beginning where, you know, Star Wars and all of these movies, they're, you know, they're kind of like fantasy. This is real, like science fiction. But you get the idea that George Lucas, Ridley Scott, all of these people are are uh, influenced by by 2001 and i wonder too when you look at the kind of movie that star wars is you know so much of what lucas is drawn from is like akura kurosawa samurai movies and westerns and Mm -hmm. you wonder if 2001 wasn't the movie that kind of put it into his head to put it into space like that could be a fantasy movie it doesn't need those ships it could be you're absolutely right it could be but you know what i always got the feeling when i first saw it that Lucas's THX 1138 was more like a 2001 than Star Wars yeah. was. But the idea that those influences that you wonder if Star Wars and and those movies would like when Ridley Scott does Alien, he's got a horror story here. But like Kubrick has proven that you can do this vast mystery of space like that mysterious element of space adds something to yeah. Star Wars. It adds something to Alien. The reason I bring this up is by 1984, when you get to 2010, A Space Odyssey, and at this point, Clark is writing the novels and he's he's written 2010. You know, what is the, what are the movies that 2010 is most influenced by are probably Alien and Star Wars and truthfully, probably the Star Trek films at that point, because there's been what, yep. like two Star Trek movies by the time. By, by 84, might have even been. Well, the first one was in the late 70s. 79, eight, Robert Wise. Does 82. Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. 82 was Wrath of Khan. Which has and, a lot in common. Like the conclusion of Wrath of Khan has a lot in common with this, with with without spoiling anything, with with uh, 2010, really. Yeah, it does. It, there, yeah. there are some similarities there. There's no doubt about. It. Yeah, I, you're definitely right that that when it got to 2010, it was much different. Where, whereas Kubrick was in sort of the the, the wonder, the the the, um, the a sanitary version of the wonders of space. By the time it got to Star Wars and it got to Alien. That's not what they were aiming for. They weren't trying to impress you with space as much as they were trying to frighten you or pull you in with the characters and their stories. And that's what you get in 2010. It's just such an interesting sequel because it's a sequel in, in, in you know, it follows characters and it, it follows the same sort of, I don't even want to say story because in, in 2010, it's very much of its time. It is a sequel to 2001 
but it is an 80s movie. I, I What I think is interesting is it's got a Soviet versus U.S. story. Oh, yeah. Big time in that, which was very big in, in 1984 when this movie was made. Well, Bill and Greg, the basic kind of setup here, it is, I think I mentioned to you, Greg, it's almost like, you know that experience when you watch a crazy movie and then you get on the internet to find, like, the notes that, to explain yeah. what happened? It's like yeah. that was the purpose. We didn't have the internet, so we made 2010 to explain to everybody. <laughs> right. It's like the cliff notes of 2001, in a sense. And yet then someone has to make it into an interesting, an interesting movie. And so they get to characters. And I think the thing is, the kind of the thing that's kind of uh, unfortunate about 2010, 2010 is that it's not like an Exorcist 2. It's not like one of these sequels that's truly bad. I think that it the expectations of what people were looking for have given it this reputation as it's not really that great. And I think it's actually a pretty solid science fiction movie. And I, I feel like it has been influential in its own right. Just I think you have to look a little harder because if you look at the plot of this movie – um, Dave, I don't know what you think, but it's very similar to some science fiction movies that come years later, even though they don't have the Russian element. Uh, you look at the plot line of, of The Abyss, like what's going on in The Abyss yeah. is not that dissimilar. Look at uh, just a few years ago, it was nominated for Best Picture, uh, Dilly Villeneuve, or Villeneuve's um, Arrival with Amy Adams. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The plot line of that movie is similar in a lot of ways to a lot of the things happening in 2010. And the style of this movie, I think, Greg, you and Bill would like it, too, because it had, it ups the feeling of the horror element a little bit. Like, not that it is horror, but, you know, you're going back to the Discovery, the ship that, you know, they don't they haven't been on it since Hal and Dave were on it. And so seeing them go back and try to board it and John Lithgow kind of floating through space, they punch up those elements that make it feel like a horror film. Like the moment yeah. they get on there and the one guy's like. I think I smell something spoiled and you're suddenly like, oh, I forgot about the, you know, and different elements there. Like when Dave mentions when you turn Hal back on for the first time and you don't know what you're going to get. They there's moments in those movies that remind me of the whole subgenre of space horror that we get later. Like you can see Event Horizon in this. You can yeah. see sunshine in this. And I think it's a lot more influential than it probably gets credit for being. And it looks it does look great. The thing it doesn't have is the sense of wonder. I mean, when that big symphonic piece of music plays in this movie, you don't see the worlds uh, aligned. You just see a bunch of satellites, you know. Yeah, it's, it's not I, nearly I, as impressive. And I think that that I, I don't know that you could have an 84 given the wonder of space and, and made it work because by that point audiences have already been exposed to the science fiction by 1968 it was very new what kubrick was giving them was very new you know this is we i like like you say we hadn't even been to the moon at that point yeah. uh in 1968 by 1984 we had gotten all the star wars movies we had gotten a lot of other science fiction films at that point so i don't know you could have created the wonder of space but what I like about these two films is just how very different in tone and style they are. And yet it feels as if it is a, a, a strong continuation of the story that Kubrick laid out in 2001. It really does, because it does tie some things together. And you got Douglas Rain back as the voice of Hal in this. You do have Keir Dulea back as, um, as David Bowman. And I love the way they open this movie because you never hear David Bowman's final words in 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
But by 2010, it starts off with that line, my God, it's full of stars, which we find out was the last transmission that David Bowman sent back to Earth when he was heading into the monolith. And that's so weird, Dave, because I had merged that and I was like, the kids were waiting to hear my God is full of stars. And they look at me and said, he didn't say that, Dad. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't say it in the movie. And I knew even when I saw it in 84, I knew he didn't say it in the original movie. But I loved that they added that, that they gave us his last words. You get that great scene with Roy Scheider when he's when he's sitting there with with Hal and Hal is saying there's a message coming in for you. Um, You know, Dr. Floyd. Oh, well, who is it? Hal? is it this one? He's like, it's just saying, well, you have to leave here in two days. And I don't want to go too, too deep into that, but it's just such an awesome scene. It really is, because it's bringing the new in with the old in an in an such a great way i thought i thought anyway i loved the scenes where they managed to get david bowman back into this film i really did i love that and i love the way that hal becomes a character in it and you get to see his creator in, in this movie you know and and the scenes were even with bob balaban when he's what, what was with sal yeah. nine thousand or whatever yeah. it was that computer back on earth where they were talking about how and how bob balaban's character looks at these and his creations as if they are, you know, sentient, as if they are, you know, as if, you know, the human side of them, as if they are just, you know, uh, uh, um, um, not a member of the crew. But you know what I mean? Like real people. Well, yeah. like the, and it's human. funny because at the start of 2010, he's now got Sal. It's like the female Sal. version. Yeah, the female version of Hal. <laughs> and the scene where and it's so cool because the scene with with. Um, with Sal, when he's like, I'm going to have to shut you down now because I have to practice bringing Hal back up. Um, and Sal's like, will I dream? And like, well, of course you'll dream. You're, 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 you know, you're whatever. And then later to juxtapose that with what happens with Hal later on. is yeah. very, so it's really is dramatic in a way, you know, it, it, it's very dramatic with, with the way that Bob Balaban, I really do think he's. For me, the most interesting character in the film. And that's saying a lot because I love John Lithgow in this and I love Roy yeah. Scheider in this and Helen Mirren's in it. It's a Helen lot of Mirren great. Yeah. yeah, it really is. There's, there's a it's a great cast and, and great characters. But Bob Balaban's character is the most interesting. Nobody else kind of sees him as that. They see him as an oddball. And you can but, see Ridley Scott, what he did with that crew and alien really kind of playing into what Hyams does here. With the, you know, you know, you no longer have these kind of cold, disconnected crew members. You have people who who are on different sides because you have the Russians and but up here in the space station, they're all just trying to figure this thing out, you know. Yes. And yes. 2001 was about exploring the mystery. 2010 is firmly rooted in let's let's uh, solve the mystery. And so for right. some people who who love the exotic mystery of 2001 to 2010 can seem a little reductive. I think it's like, oh, we're going to uh, un we're going to unspool all the mystery for you. But I still think it is a really strong movie and it's a lot of fun to watch. And it, it will feel a lot more like a conventional sci-fi thriller. I think, I think Bill, you might feel like you do get a little bit more payoff with this one than you did with uh, uh, 2001. Yeah. It also sounds like it has, has a little bit of humor to it, a little bit more on the. Yeah. There's warmth there too, because you do get a, you get some great scenes uh, and Roy Scheider is, you know, he is giving a, a, a warmer, much warmer performance from the guy from, from Sylvester from before, yes. but you know, Lithgow is really funny. He's 
the is he's he's working in space, but he's an engineer, not an astronaut. He's like, I'm afraid of heights. Was that a was that a bad career choice? <laughs> right. He's, yeah. Exactly. He's the he's the one who's got to go out into space, and that's a great scene where you just hear him sort of hyperventilate. Well, and you get so many of those scenes in like Interstellar and Mission to Mars, and I think I'm like, I this feels like this was one of the first times you really had that. Yeah. Well, like, and in Apollo 13, similar scenes of like. He, you're in the spacesuit with this guy. You don't get that in 2001, right? When Frank Poole, it's sort of detached. But here, it's like, oh my gosh. Like you said, Greg, it's like, w- by the time it's gone wrong, I won't even know it. I'll just be tilting through space. Yeah, and I mean, you had me so when I think you or Dave, or maybe both of you had mentioned, I mean, when I looked up the cast, you had me sold right then. I'm like, shoot, man, John Lithgow and Roy Scheider alone, I'm sold. I'm like, you know, I definitely want this. And from the director of Time Cop, so you were in Yeah, right, exactly, well, I'm yes. I'm curious, though. Yes. I'm looking it up on Amazon right now, and, like, you can get the Blu-ray for twenty one ninety nine. I mean, too much for this movie? Uh, I, I don't think it. I mean, I, I don't know. Twenty one ninety nine. I think I, I got it when the Blu-ray, I think, first yeah. came out. There's no there's not a lot of special features. There's a making of that was, um, you know, contemporary at the time, you know, from 84, uh, yeah. like the making of the movie. There's not a lot of special features on the Blu-ray. Um, twenty one ninety nine is. <laughs> it, 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 Greg, do you ever I mean, uh, if you're a person, so it's me, I've kind of moved. I mean, I haven't moved completely completely away from like i still love collecting movies but i i also don't have a problem these days kind of buying the digital version of something right, and i think yeah. you get the digital version on amazon for 12 bucks it's, it's definitely worth that you know yeah um, i would say it's that de- it's definitely worth that just just to see just to see the movie you know just I mean, rating wise i'd honestly give it about an eight out of a ten honestly. Yeah. i think it's a very good movie it's just not I would be 2001 yeah. that's the only real issue people had i think now i i had seen this now this is the only reason i'm thinking it had to be before 85 that i saw 2001 because i went with uh, i told the story about how when i saw raiders of the lost ark i got to see it three times in the theater and my neighbor was the one who took me the third time that same neighbor took me to see 2010 me and my brother to see 2010 when it came out in 1984 because he wanted to see it but you know he had some younger children his wife wasn't able to go so he took my 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 brother and I, and I had seen 2001, my brother hadn't, but I had seen 2001. And I remember we went and saw this film. Now he had seen 2000, he was in college when 2001 came out, may or may not have seen it under the influence of, of you know. But <laughs> uh, uh, well, as long as he I, wasn't giving you guys here, guys. No, no, he wasn't. He wasn't. He was sort of kind of open with us about that. Hey, when I first saw this movie, I was in college. And, you know, when, when, when we all went to this movie, you know, um, but one of the, well, what I remember most is the drive home because he laid out for me 2001 because I didn't fully understand it by that point. But by the time that drive was done home from seeing 2010, he had laid it out for me as to why 2010 was a good sequel to it, because it sort of laid, you know, it sort of took everything from 2001 to that level. And I then at the end of that car ride, and I remember what was really interesting is that he would be explaining the movie, but he got behind someone who was driving really slow and he would stop every now and again to curse this driver. And I was just remember, okay, yes, this guy's a jerk, but please get back to the discussion of the movie. But Right. Uh, and you were able to watch 2001 and enjoy it. So you could deal with a slow car. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I didn't have a, exactly. That's what you want to say. But um, every time he'd be like, yeah, and then when they did this in the movie, oh, come on, you jackass, Starman. Okay, <laughs> please, get back to talking about the movie. But 
at the My end God, of that it's car ride. Cars. Yes, it's, <laughs> by the end of that movie, by the end of that drive, I understood not only you know what I'd seen in 2010, but everything of 2001, and I never quite saw 2001 the same again after my neighbor telling me what he thought, you know, what he thought it was about. And that's pretty much what I found out later that that is what 2001 is. So it really did help me in a way. So 2010 was even more important in my, uh, to me in my uh, enjoyment of 2001, just because of the experience under which I saw it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good, good movie for sure. And I do think it, I think it is definitely worth, um, Tony Greg, I'd like to say the two versions I had. I, the first time I bought it, it was way back in the day. I had one of those DVD, the like cardboard DVD case oh. that you get out of like yeah, Walmart the snap bin. Case. Yeah, yeah, the, the snap, snap case. case. Yeah, I think I bought that yeah. in altered states. Yeah, we're both at the bottom of the Walmart bin. Exactly. Also, Bob Balaban there, right? Uh, you know, another kind of yes. similar performance. I was going to say, by the, by the time you got it home, a couple of the spindles had broken already. Oh, it's the worst. You know what I really dislike <laughs> is when you get those. those sets that they have the DV stacked on top of each other, but that's a whole different, right? That's uh, the way it's of a 4K, they literally have one of the discs on top of each other. I'm like, what Which one was wow. that? The 2001 the Space Odyssey. Oh, really? Yeah. Ugh. Wow. I know you've been watching that's Tales from the Dark Side, uh, Greg. I hate the way those CD DVDs are laid out in that disc. Mm -hmm. They're just jammed on top of each other. You have to, like, prime them with a fork. <laughs> I, know, the, I think my the, the very first uh, Goodfellas I owned was one of those snap cases, and it was a double-sided. You know, you, you'd get half the movie, then you'd have to turn the disc over to get the other half of the movie. <laughs> you hope that they put the right movie inside. Yeah. Remember, right. Around that same time, I remember as a college, I read, I bought Night Stalker, the cool check, the Night Stalker, and it wasn't one of those cases. But I got it home, I put it in the in the player. And uh, I, I walked in the next room. My roommate comes in, and it's John Voight is showering naked. <laughs> like, he's like, what is this? And then I was like, this is Midnight Cowboy. I don't know. What, <laughs> this is not Night Stalker at oh, I, all. It's funny because, I, you know what? I love Midnight Cowboy, but if you want to see Night Stalker, you're, you're in for a very different experience if you're watching Midnight, Midnight Cowboy, Cowboy. has an interesting Bob Balaban. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Bob well. Balaban, a very... Boy, Bob Balaban seems to be the, uh, the, the, the uh, yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, any, any, uh, final, uh, thoughts that you guys have on, on any of this on 2001 or, or 2010? Uh, I just, just, I think that even, even as different as it is, 2010 is a, is a good sequel to 2001. You know, it just, it's two different directors, two different visions, two different styles of film, but a satisfactory sort of, if yeah. you put them together, I think it's a satisfactory whole, you know, and the, I, the story as a whole. I think Peter Himes is actually uh, a, a pretty decent, you know, he's, he's more of the workman-like director, you know, he's mm -hmm. not a visionary, but he had just made a movie I like a lot called Outland with Sean Connery. Oh, yeah. He had just yeah. made that a couple years before he made this one. I think it was a movie he made right before this. And then later on, he did, like, The Relic, and he did a, he probably did two of the better Von Damme movies with Time yeah. Cop. Time Cop, uh, Time Cop, you know what? The, the, you know what? You, you gotta kind of check your brain at the door with Time Cop, because you're like, okay, well, how come that journey to the past didn't change the future, but <laughs> this one did? Uh, you he know, did End of Days with Schwarzenegger. He's a fun genre he, director. Yes, he, he's a fun... He, he really is, but I do love Time Cop. Even, even with those sort of issues... 
When it yeah. comes to Van Damme films, I think it is one of Van Damme's better films this time, Cop, without he, a doubt. He did the one, too, with Van Damme in, the, in the, like, the hockey arena, which I kind of like that one, too. He's at the hockey game, and he's to fight off, like, terrorists or something. Oh, right. Like, yeah, sudden I, death. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned with John Ritter, where he's, like, they're trapped in the devil's television or something. That was kind of Wow. Cool. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Okay, so I think that's... um. That's about it for us. I'll go ahead and it was really cool. I really enjoyed the ability to sit down and talk about this movie. I'm looking forward to doing more in this series of, of different films. Uh, Greg, we'd love to have you back on. Do Dr. Strange love sometime? I'd like to have everybody back oh, on yeah. if you guys are up for it. Yes, um, I think absolutely. that'd be a lot of fun. And otherwise, um, I guess we'll go around and guys just uh, plug whatever you want to plug and we'll kind of close out. And uh, that'll be it. Thank you so much for joining. I, I loved having everybody, all the lands of the creeps, all the creeps, I guess, here. Um, it was it was really cool. So thanks, guys, so much. First of all, thank you, Nathan, for the invite, for sure, dude. Love you and appreciate you and love your podcast, for sure. Um, you can follow me at Land of the Creeps uh, Horror Podcast, which is landofthecreeps.blogspot.com, where Bill and Dave over there, we try to bang out episodes every two weeks normally in a four and a half hour process, but we still get them out and, uh, we're having a great time. Got, uh, I'm Greg Morgan on Facebook. You can do our land of the creeps group page, fan page. If you'd like Twitter, Instagram, all of good thing. Great job. Land of the creeps, uh, discussion board or the group over there is a lot of fun. There's a lot of really cool people in there. There's all this cool stuff going on. And, uh, and that's the thing, you know, this podcast and, uh, and the Land of the Creeps discussion board got me back into podcasting, Greg. So thanks, oh. thanks for that, man. Um, Dave, do you want to go ahead and uh, and, and yeah. mention too your podcast, your oh, your I, new podcast? Absolutely, yeah. Well, I uh, thank you very much, Nathan, for having me on. It's always it's always great. I, I loved the um, the Ray Harryhausen episode. That was a lot of fun, and this was great to get to talk about about 2001. Uh, my all-time favorite sci-fi film and 2010 as well. I just, I, I think that uh, I love them both, but you know, 2001, uh, it was great. And I think we did the movie justice. You know, like you said, I think we came out just about 15, 15 minutes short of the actual running time of the movie. So that's, that's pretty good. That's really good. Um, uh, you could, you know, obviously on land of the creeps, uh, check me out where I, where I'm, uh, every two weeks with, with, uh, Greg and Bill, um, and we have we do have a lot of fun over there. Yeah, the shows are, are you know very long. I mean, we you know they're released every two weeks, but we take a, a week to record them. It seems like, uh, but it's so much fun, and I love doing it. Um, and uh, other podcasts, obviously horror movie podcasts. Are, um, also, I have my blog uh, dvdinfatuation.com, where I do still post reviews one a week and I'm actually starting to, you know, going to uh, throw a few extra things on there, um, uh, you know, from time to time as well. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at DVD infatuation. I'm on Instagram and I do have, um, my own, uh, podcast now it's on, uh, considering the cinema J, uh, J of the deads. Um, uh, well, Jason piles, uh, AKA J of the dead, uh, his, uh, podcast where he talks all things cinema not just horror, but just, you know, all cinemas. And um, he asked me if I would want to do my own podcast. He's been on me for a few years to do it. And, and um, the, the, the situation just seemed right at this point. And I decided to do it. And the response has been great. Thank you to everybody who, uh, who listened. Uh, 
Um, and it was a lot of fun to, to do that. And, and I'm hoping to just sort of keep the format going. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, that's it. I just want to, you know, I, I appreciate everybody listening to it. They usually just around an hour long, so they're not quite the same length of the other podcasts that I do. But um, like I said, the response has been great. So thank you very much to everybody for listening. I really do appreciate that. Dave, I'll, we'll put a link to it in this in the show notes here for, for all the uh, different podcasts. But uh, I love the, it has almost a magazine sort of feel. You know, you're about three different segments and really informative, a lot of passion. Yeah, I, really good. So awesome, cool. And uh, yeah, I'd love to have you back anytime, Dave. So yes, thank you. Thank you. And uh, Bill, uh, how about you? I know you'll uh, well, be back. I will be back. I look forward to our next uh, video on demand roulette. And I've got a whole cadre of films I'm going to randomly choose for you. So I couldn't tell you what's coming up next because it'll depend on that day. You keep telling me, look what I found. And, I'm like, oh, no. and, and that was se- that was seven films ago. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and I get to do Land of the Creeps with these two knuckleheads, Greg and Dave, every couple weeks. So it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Bills yeah. everywhere, like literally yep. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, cool. Uh, thank you so much. Of course, you can catch us here at Phantom Galaxy. Uh, we're on Twitter as at Phantom Galaxy. That's with an F, F A N T O M. And you can email us at phantomcast at gmail.com if you have any suggestions, thoughts, or anything of, of that nature. And anyway, until next time, this is the Phantom Galaxy signing out. Thanks again, guys. But that's what he did. That was his, that was what he did. That was that was his style of filmmaking. Is someone sawing wood? Yeah, I was supposed to sure. Somebody was like preparing steaks to kill a vampire. Yeah, that's what it sounded like. <laughs> I, I know. I, I just wiped like some dust off my computer. Maybe that oh, was. Oh, okay. It sounded exactly like sawing. I was like, is someone disposing of a body on this podcast? <laughs> right, yeah. Right. That would be something. Yes. yes right. It was um, it was pop, popping in the popping in the player and when it came up it said written and directed by Yuri Bowl, I said, Oh, what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> but I gotta to go normal. to a page where I can talk about a guy killing people with chainsaws and cutting off their faces just to keep on the sunny side of things. <laughs> yes, you know, exactly. we, we've turned a corner. <laughs> exactly. When you're talking about those type of things to cheer you up, you're absolutely <laughs> right. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Mm-hmm.